0: Onto this computer as well. So now we're live on YouTube, apparently. So I'll just wait for it to go pop up and then I'll share the link with uh, with everyone. All right, there it is. We're live. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to uh, another episode of Hash Church. It's been about a month since we popped one of these off. We are still in Hash Church 3.0, episode 22. I don't know how many we've done so far, but we've got a cool group today with a couple of new folks that haven't been in the room before. So welcome to both Max and and Nick. Awesome to have you you guys here. Yeah, welcome to uh, Skunkman Sam, of course, and Wade Laughter, a couple of OGs in the house. I like it. You got the OGs, you got some new folks, we've got to keep, uh, we're all rungs in the ladder after all of the the beautiful trichome that we love so much. Johnny fucking B is in the house. How are you doing, Johnny fucking B? There he is, Johnny B. What's up, dude? I don't know, man. I just, I, I you bring a smile to my face when I see you.
1: It's always great to see everybody this morning.
0: Hell yeah. Hey,
1: Johnny B.
2: So I'm, I'm moving slowly today because I uh, herniated my desk on. Oh,
0: dude, yesterday, Tuesday, huh? When did you do that? Yeah, that's what happens when you actually, uh,
2: I think it was probably Tuesday or Wednesday because I ended up in the hospital, not live yet, I ended up in the hospital on Thursday and Friday and I'm just like, how did you I'm
0: sorry to hear it. I went for a walk. Keep in mind, John has broken almost every bone in his body when he fell 30 feet off the scissor lift that he was working on some years ago, shattered like the side of his body, ended up on all the opioids. You guys have all heard the story. So it makes sense that John could go for a walk and absolutely herniate his disc. Funny enough, John, yesterday I was on my electric skateboard with my son in Squamish ripping around. And I got a little confidence and I went up this big bank and I was kind of like halfway through. I was like, what am I doing? I've got my six year old son on the board with me. Well, I bailed pretty good too and uh, sprained my wrist. So I'm just kind of, you know, this is what happens when we get older, we get, we get a lot more
2: fragile. We have to slow down. And then you look at our, like when we were kids, we're like, yeah. So, you know, the idea is to, when you go for a walk, don't
0: try and walk for two hours. Well, yeah. I'll tell you, this Moxley's, Mr. Moxley's salve, Mr. Moxley's salves. I, I think you met these guys with me before. This is a good product, I got to say. I have like 20 salves at the house here, and I was rubbing them all over my wrist over the course of the last two days, including this non cannabis one from, from Sage or Sage, whatever they call it. Nice. Like I got this. I got. This is the, the
2: goods really good to get all these creams and all the stuff they have i actually have about six or seven in my bathroom so i have ones from jerry james i got mjm creams i got i got so many different ones buddha bars all these different creams and bars and they all have different uh ingredients so they actually work different ways some got that eucalyptus smell or they got different fragrances and and just those smells actually help right so uh, i love the creams when you need them they're great but Johnny B's
0: get he's getting into the sensory science of cannabis and that's literally why I invited our two newest guests today Max Montrose who does the interpening over in Colorado and has amazing books and I'm going to let him do a little introduction on himself and then afterwards we'll talk to Nick Ziegler who I was lucky enough to get introduced to via Jeremy Plum and of course when I first met Jeremy I just I just You know, we got right into a whole ton of conversations, went extremely deep down the rabbit hole. And he was like, man, you got to meet my friend, Nick. You know, he's like the he's like the bubble man of hops. I'm telling you, you got to meet this guy. I was like, oh, shit. Well, I want to meet. Funny enough, I just mentioned Jeremy Plum and who shows up into the room. But Jeremy Plum. So perfect timing, Jeremy. Your ears must have been burning. I literally just mentioned you and how you introduced me to Nick. And uh, yeah, I guess we really just started, but I want to maybe let Max uh, tell us a little bit about all the things he's been doing for the last few years uh, and introduce himself to Hash Church. I'm sure he's very well known in the cannabis community, but some of the Hash Church uh, people might might be new to him. So give it a go, Max. Welcome to Hash Church. We're happy to have you what have you been up to tell us we want to hear about it
3: thank you so much for having me on hash church i've wanted to be on for a long time so it's it's great to be hanging out with all you guys um what's up everybody what's up hash church uh followers if, if you guys don't know um me i'm max montrose i, I started the trichome institute we're a cannabis education company that likes to uh do the best job we can to mitigate the misinformation that is prolific in our industry and teach people things that we know to be real and true based off of lots of hard work lots of research um and we have a, a different approach to cannabis in a, in a variety of different ways um, I'm not going to bore you with all of our courses and classes online and all the different stuff we do. I'll, I'll tell you more about the sensory stuff, since this is kind of what that show is is about. Um, I started a program called Interpening, and Interpening came out uh, first in 2014. And the idea of interpening is a an approach to cannabis from more than an expert level, uh, simply because... It's uh, pretty common that when we meet cannabis experts, they don't necessarily even know um, a lot of the anatomic features of a cannabis flower, how many different types of trichomes a plant grows, and what their different functions are, um, and so many other things, such as even what's the proper name of those little pistils. Uh, many cannabis experts don't know those things, but further, from an expertise perspective and more than an expertise from a sommelier perspective, how can we intimately engage with cannabis flower in a way so intelligent that we can actually gauge where on the spectrum of psychopharmacy between stimulating to sedative, any domesticated hybrid plant type will fall within by just engaging it um, with, with, our, with ourselves. So no strain name, no lab testing. What is the quality of this flower? What is the quality of this product? And how is this product going to make you feel psychotropically? And how would you know that? Um, And so our program utilizes uh, three different cranial nerves. And the one that's kind of the coolest is our fifth cranial nerve, which is the trigeminal nerve which is the largest aspect of interpreting methodology, which is our actual ability to organize how and where terpenes accumulate and group within the totality of themselves in, in the flower and your ability to actually feel their quantum mechanic vibrations that do vibrate in certain, in particular ways. And we actually instruct people how to sense and feel when cannabis is vibrating in more of a stimulating pattern or more of a sedative pattern, um, and and how to kind of analyze the flower in other ways to kind of put it on a spectrum of you know what is this, what is this hybrid plant, what are we working with? Um, so that's just kind of that's just a good way to scratch the surface of of interpreting, and I would love to. Uh, answer any of your questions and, and dive deep into it if you'd like.
0: Dude, I love the, I love the sensory science aspect of what you're doing. And I, I never, you know, I, I dug down it. I always found it very interesting. We communicated a little bit. I, I sent you, you some pictures early on for one of your books that you did. And I just, I love what you're doing, man. I, I think that, um, I see more and more people sort of taking this new approach and I, you know, I think Ganjir is, has started a sort of Sommelier type course. You've got yours going like the more that we can get of this and the more we can kind of figure out like, what is, going to be called that cannabis sommelier because it's going to be a different term i think but it's the one we use when we because we're just at the start of 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 this sort of road but i i i literally have to pause take a quick break and say what's up to my homie rick delisi who just came into the room i haven't talked i haven't talked to this guy since his father got let out of prison after jesus christ rick was it 32 years
4: yeah, thirty-two fucking years. Can you hear me? Fucking
0: hell, bro! I can hear you so well, man. I've been watching you with your father, with his granddaughter, with the whole family, dude. It's been bringing tears to my eyes.
4: I knew you were. I knew you were tuned in. I knew you were tuned in. I felt your presence, and like, bro, it's just been a fucking whirlwind lately. But it's fucking awesome, and um, I know you're one of the people that touched a lot. Dude, will oh, I remember man. talk. I, no, oh, yes. no, you did. You did so much for it. So it was like you brought me not alone, but you and the cannabis community put me a lot in the forefront because of my father's situation. And slowly but surely, I got to the people who were necessary to get my father proper advocation. And and he was released December 28th this year, thank God. And he's in decent health. Um, We're we're struggling to get him... uh, up and running as, as a certain factor in the industry in some sense, kind of get a little sort of restitution for him, but everything seems to be going well. And I just got my head up and I'm super thankful for all the reception and man, I mean,
0: well, I am down for some of that bubble bags wants to support his uh, re-entry. You, you hooked me up on the sidelines, dude, and I'll do whatever I can for that. I'll never forget you know that sort of perspective i gave you and it might have been in barcelona or amsterdam one day when we were talking about our old man and i was telling you how mine died on the motorcycle accident i said look dude your dad's he's gone but he's not but gone he's you're you're yeah. going to get him back and you were and i didn't like, remember oh, i didn't whoa.
4: believe it because it had been so no, long and i had gone well, no through shit, so many dude. trials and tribulations so dude. i was like i was like yeah that shit's easier said than done but you know i didn't give up and through the network of a great few people yeah he's he's free and he's now um a looking, an emancipated human holy christ
5: dude you got yeah. him out sooner rick except for he that was, was the problem of, exactly Sam, you know you know the deal That
0: absolutely so yeah on that note i'm gonna have a dab um awesome yeah it's so good to see you, dude. I I wasn't sure if you were going to have time or be able to come out and whatnot. And, and I, I'll be bro, honest, dude. Like, part of me was kind of like, I didn't want to, um, like, try to be one of those people that were going to be like, you know, I always just wanted to give you a place to to sort of share the story. But once he got you know, out... You don't have to...
4: I, I wanted to be more um, receptive, but it's also, like, at a certain point, I was so hounded upon the release. Boy, that it was like... I think on the 15th day, I just said to my dad, like, dude, I'm not answering another news company. I'm not answering another press call
2: because they were
4: like getting to the point that they wanted to do. Like first they did my 21 year old daughter in a story and then they wanted my 12 year old. I was like, no, after the 14th day, I said like, look, everybody's got to leave. My dad was like, no, we got two more barbecues with everybody. I said, dad, I can't take it anymore. Like it's been 14 days of nonstop, like sh- but it it's all worth it in good retrospect it's just like you know I really appreciated just going back this time and having that two weeks with him alone that was groundbreaking for me
0: dude I can't believe you're what were you 11 years old when your dad uh, got pulled yeah Yeah.
2: so you're 11
0: years old he goes to prison he gets out your son is 12 years old
4: my daughter's twelve years da- old. Your daughter, yeah, yeah. Jesus Yeah, I have three daughters. I have three daughters. I got a twenty-one-year-old, a twelve-year-old, and a two-year-old. Well, that's right. You're and the oldest. He old had never girls. met. He had never met the twelve and the two-year-old, but it it's all good. They know each other now and they like each other a lot. So it's fucking cool, bro. It's like Dude. it's weird. You know, you want to hear the weirdest thing? This is what, and this isn't a good thing, but it it runs through my head. Kind of shocking. The snitch is dead, and my dad's free. Ah wow. you know what I mean. So, Holy and my and my dad is lightweight, healthy, and the snitch is dead. So it's like, and he died of natural causes. We didn't have to do anything. It's just like, and I'm not saying I'm glad he's dead. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just
0: saying. No, dude, ironic. I get you. I you get know? you. I get you. It is well. Here. It's play. It's it played out the way it was supposed to. I'll be uh, hitting a bowl with you as well. And later on, Max, I want to get into a little bit of uh, how you guys look at the different methods of inhaling and not just the different methods, but also off the different, you know, whether you're inhaling off of, say, silicone carbide, whether you're inhaling off of quartz, whether you're inhaling off of sapphire. You know all of these different surfaces, and I don't know how deep you've gone into this, Max. But if you haven't, I suggest hooking you up with Brian Schroeder from Dmail, who seems to be like all he focuses on is the way the terpenes are preserved or destroyed, based on how the surface area holds, retains, and releases heat. And it's a whole other rabbit hole. And I'm sure you've done some experimenting. For me, I got pretty lucky with with, uh, with blue. Yeah, the slurper. I mean, this is kind of a slurper right here. No, I but got all those slurpers uh, are the great original. because they have so much
4: air intake. So the oxygen just pushes the vapor through. Yeah, I got that one too. I like that one a lot. The blender? Yeah, I got the blender right here.
0: That's Hold what's on. up. Ooh. That's what's up. So I got all the... The JP gave me this a, a long while ago, and I've never used this. And now I'm having a hard time using it because someone told me they sold for like 1200 US dollars. And I was like... Twelve hundred U.S. dollars for a banger—that seems—that seems, uh, that seems fairly extreme. Ew- Ewok Glass shipped me out this one. It was a custom ten milli for my little uh, Dustin Revere fucking here. Dope. Dude, dope. it's I so love the Revere raindrops. <laughs> the first time I smoked this little this little banger, I just was like, oh, I'll just hit a normal size dab, dude. I felt like I was in grade eight. I got so high, I would not only wanted to run like just wherever, I wanted to run out of my skin. It was that intense, and uh, you guys know I I puff a lot.
4: My first slab, my first slurpers did the same to me. It was like everybody was like, "Have you ever had a turf?" So I was like, "Yeah, whatever, bro. I've had big dabs. Come on, let's do it." Put a normal dab on it was just like, oh. At the end, I was just like, "Holy shit, this is a whole other level." (laughs) Anyway, it's true innovation. um, Thanks for uh, welcoming to welcoming me to Hash Church.
2: um, that's
3: yeah. All... Did you want me to answer some yeah. of these things while you're loading the yeah. bowl and thinking that? Hell yeah. Do that, yes. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't want to disappoint you, but uh, interpreting in and of itself has not yet moved into passion concentrates from an interpreting perspective. And the reason for that is the amount of work that needs to be done and that we're doing from a cannabis and uh, sommelier perspective. And so we're currently, we're, we're still not done developing and learning the, the flower aspects of uh, cannabis appellation, which is brand new. Cannabis taewa, is it real or not? And who says so? And what is cannabis taewa? And how would you work with it in different capacities? And then within that, what about typicity? And typicity is a term that the cannabis industry doesn't know yet. That's a term from viniculture, where certain wines have tastes that are of typical, that typical unique thing that could only be that one certain thing. So the way that Durban poison has a flavor and an aroma that is unlike anything else in the world, there's no fruit there's no flower, there's no perfume, there's no plant, there's nothing in the world that smells like Durban poison. And it has and retains that unique flavor sense so much so that it's a unique characteristic that's recognizable. Well, what is, what, how, do you, how do you call that? What is that? That is its typicity. Um, and so our ability to certify OG genetics, if 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 you go to a dispensary and you're selling Jack Herrera, it better damn smell and be in Jack Herrera. But how do you do that with cannabis morphology? And how do you do that with a black market culture that has said, "Hey, dude, I got Jack Herrera just so that Florida you buy needs it that so bad." Right. And so so this is what we're working on is is actually being able to certify the typicity of these OG genetics and these OG varietals to give them the truth in the marketplace that they deserve. And so our our work with just flower alone is megalithic, right? And we're also working on apps um, to, to do, to basically build what Leafly always wishes it was, which is an actual application where if you said, you know what, I wanna look for cannabis in a way where I'm going to shop for a particular feeling, which might not come from a strain name or a lab test. And so our ability to use interpreting methodology and also extremely sophisticated um, lab work, we're partnered with guys who actually built a cannabis aroma supercomputer. And they're visually seeing in three-dimensional gas chromatography, the full scope of of terpenes, well over a hundred terpene, types. their alcohols and their thiols and their polyphenols that contribute to this true complexity of how, where aroma is coming from. Like a lot of people think that the gas note in cannabis is a terpene. And a lot of people think that that terpene is terpenoline. And what we're finding is, is that gas is a thiol. And so, how do we work with theols in in the way that you guys were just saying? So you're talking about using different bangers for the purposes of terpenes, and you're talking about going down rabbit holes. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, here's a whole brand new world called flavorance. And how do we how do we operate with the complexity of the flavors and aroma characteristics that cannabis truly has to offer? Um, and and these are things that I'm still learning about, and I'm still exploring. So um, you know, uh, that, that's kind of where interpreting is right now. Um, but we also believe that interpreting can and does and deserve to move into the world of concentrates. Um, and that's where I would want help from guys who know concentrates way better than I do. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm a flower dude, <laughs> just all day. Backyard yeah. flowers, just growing in horse shit behind the house, just raw stinky ganja cooking in the sun (laughs) that's my jam
5: realize that terpenes were so important
3: what's that when did i realize that terpenes were so important yes um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna tell tell you i'm gonna tell you the truth about this uh it was when i was buying cannabis as a kid on the black market before there was dispensaries and when I would smoke certain flowers, they affected me so dramatically in such different ways that I was actually able to stop taking pain medication for my uh, crooked spine or uh, anxiety medication for, for my anxiety or stop taking Adderall as a child just to pay attention in school. Because when I started smoking Island Sweet Skunk and Golden Goat, I just realized I, I can pay attention because these herbs are stimulants, the way that Adderall is a stimulant, except when I take Adderall, I can't eat, I can't sleep, and I'm an asshole. And that's what meth does to you, because it's, it's meth. Adderall is an amphetamine salt. Ritalin is meth yeah, And yeah. they give kids meth now. as scholastic that's performance nuts. enhancement. It is not medicating a debilitating condition. All right. So I'm basically taking meth pills as a kid just to do better in school because I'm ADD and dyslexic up until the point I smoke Golden Goat. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can pay attention when I smoke goat or Island Sweet Skunk. But the, the side effects are the opposite. I can eat. I can sleep and I'm in a good mood. And so it changed my fucking life when I found cannabis and how I could take care of myself and stop taking these medications but only if I could organize and compartmentalize how different flower types affect me in the different ways that it does. And so as a naturalist um, and as a a chronic observer of all things nature, and as a dominant super taster, uh, chemically and genetically, um, I actually started paying attention to and realizing how, how and where the terpenes were felt in different parts of the face. Way before I knew what terpenes were, and also way before I knew what the trigeminal nerve was, that there are actually nerve endings between your ophthalmic bulb and your maxillary gland of the trigeminal nerve that is a sensory perception uh, cranial nerve. So I didn't know any of that stuff until I kept learning and kept going down the rabbit hole and kept exploring what is this? What, what do we have here? Because we've got something here. We can organize cannabis, and the organization works within the inflorescence of the cola structure, its its shape context, plus its smell context, and plus where you're feeling the aroma of the smell in, in different parts of your face. Those are three cranial nerves that we pull together, which is interpreting. We're interpreting the terpenes of these flower types to gauge them and put them on these different spectrums. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but this is a little cheat sheet I made. And uh, we're actually switching out the leaves for buds and if you I can open up the book and show you the book and actually the weed wheel is kind of a good example too so um so instead of saying sativa because it's not what it is is it is narrow leaf marijuana that's what this is this is a narrow leaf marijuana and where you feel the smell what type of smell what the flower structure looks like that affects your body in certain ways here's the gauge of an NLM would physically affect you energetically. Mentally, it's stimulating. Your focus is productive. Your mood is adventurous. Your risk is paranoia. And your activity could be concerts or creative arts. How intoxicated you'll become is dependent on your personal tolerance. And then we go through the spectrum of the five effect types of flower um, with this tool. And then simultaneously, this is a tool that organizes Uh, your flower types in its different effect spectrum similarly. And we we tell people that the original term or industry term is indica to sativa. Uh, But in reality, you're talking about subspecies and the subspeciation of flower types within the broad to narrow leaf spectrum within the category of marijuana are uh, generally indica subspecies. And so this is really a, a spectrum between sativa species subspecies Afghanica indica variety Afghanica to sativa species subspecies indica variety indica Um, and so really trying to teach people that it's not indica or sativa the speciation subspeciation and then the varietals thereof um, are more complex Um, but anyways you can open this card up and we also teach, you know, the quality, uh, poor quality characteristics, as well as all of your positive quality characteristics. What you're smelling from a terpene perspective, and how those terpenes interact with you in your face. So this is just one of our fun little tools <clears> that we use to, <throat> part of our little toolkit. that's yeah,
0: fucking awesome. That's, yeah. yeah, that's what I just said.
3: That's that's awesome. Yeah. Go ahead. Go awesome. ahead,
0: Sam. You're I want to hear from we, Sam.
3: We, we,
5: there's a week tried to determine if people could smell more than one or two terpenes by smelling cannabis, and uh, everybody fails.
3: Well, you know, I've got a That's good funny. one for you, Sam. The terpene supercomputer that I, I, I'm friends with now, they called bullshit on interpreting. They're like, there's no way that you can just smell unlabeled cannabis and categorize the chemistry effect type of it and so they bought me an airplane ticket flew me out to their lab in california where they had previously lab tested eight different types of cannabis that could not have been more different from each other one was harvested that week another was over a year old some were six months old they had hardcore uh, sativas hardcore indica's they had OG types where you should have recognized the typicity of, of a classic genetic. They had uh, just the whole spread. And they're all guys in white lab coats. And then they invited the dispensary owners of LBCA, the Los Angeles um, Dispensary Organization. So the, the OGs who have been having uh, dispensaries in LA probably longer than anybody else in the US to all watch me do this. To see like can this guy actually go about an unlabeled jar of cannabis and tell us all everything about its quality what its plant shape would have looked like and how its chemical effect is going to be uh based off of their lab analysis and right. uh, jar and, after and jar I'm just, i got seven I'm just out talking of eight.
5: about the terpene contents all the other stuff it sounds much more possible but terpenes because if, if, an average cannabis variety has 50, 60 different terpenes. And uh, most people can name one or two from if it's really loud and really dominant, but they can't name any more because
0: it's just too difficult for them or they don't have the experience. Yeah, but now we're moving into the future, Sam. See, you're 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 like the fucking base rung on the ladder, dude. Like we're all like without you, dude, like none of us would be where we are. That's a fact. But when I listen to Max, it sounds like he's right on the fucking money with shit that you've already done in a more sort of simplistic range and he's taking it to this like futuristic like I'll just say this, I go with my gut and everything Max just said fucking sounded proper. I, I'm yeah, interested, I, I, I like it. Yeah, right on. And to, hey, to this nurse.
4: is definitely something serious in the wine industry. So I always wondered when it would become prevalent in the cannabis industry.
3: Yeah, and after, <laughs> Nick, I mean, after Nick talks, cause I want to hear from Nick as well. Um, if, if, you, if you'd like Rick, um, organizing cannabis as a commodity in as in selling it and operating at it from a wine and viniculture perspective makes a thousand times more sense than what we've been doing in our mom's basement for the past 20, 30 years. Uh, but and that's so what's <laughs>
4: kind of happened in the past five years is
3: that there's
4: become such a fine um, knowledge of the preference of which terpenes people want and so forth. At first, it was like, yo, if I got some good weed, it's good weed. Boom. We're good. Now people want their certain like range of what they want, their gelatos or their OGs or their, you know, whatever cush their their preference or the cookies or it's just funny to see, but that's, that was, that is the next step with, um, with cannabis. I, I've been feeling it for a while. Just wine was always respected that way. Once it was brought into the, and even beer IPAs, they're really respected in the market of flavors, you know? So cannabis is definitely,
3: but even, even, just, um, um, even from a more basic perspective, because what you're talking about is, is truly complex, but from a way more basic perspective, uh, just, just imagine this just for a second. A sophisticated wine shopper would never walk into an alcohol store and ask for a variety of grape at a percentage of alcohol for, for the bottle of wine that they're looking for. That's just fucking ridiculous. People laugh at that idea. They're like, yeah, but that doesn't make sense. It's like, exactly. But that's what we do with weed. And it doesn't make sense. Whereas in wine, if you walk into a liquor store and tell the guy, you know, red or white, right? A stimulating type or a sedative type? Red. Perfect. What country? USA. What region? Northern California. What type oh. of uh, what type of variety?
6: Cal- Max, you could- Max, you are ignoring the uh, Mad Dog 2020 customer base. And the uh the old lady <laughs> Cisco. Everybody who wants Cisco. He's like, like he's like, but to
3: what to about two
0: so buck chuck?
3: Get I, you know what? That's not the that's not the type of customer, you know. And like, like if you're the kind of customer that does not care, you just want to get high or you just want to get drunk, that's what two buck chuck is for. And that's what like sacks of cheap flour are for. But that's not the kind of guys we're hanging out with on Hash Church. <laughs> and I don't think that's the kind of guys that watch Hash Church either. So uh, <laughs> you know, it's just just a different breed. But but the point is, is if we were to compartmentalize cannabis like wine, we're gonna get to a point where we say, hey dude, what are you looking for? I'm like, man, I'm looking for some skunky, garlicky, OG funk that's gonna lay me out but get me thinking. It's like, okay, I got something for you. I regardless of the lab test and regardless of the strain name like I don't give a fuck what you call it I know what you're looking for and I can tell you how good it is what quality it is when it was harvested how ripe it is and how loud it is from a chemical perspective and I can I can offer it to you in a fun cool creative way and I can also make it sound so fucking sexy too I mean you're talking about a OG varietal from the Appalachians of the Emerald Triangle, within a unique wa that filters the oceanic air twice a day through the pine trees, giving fresh air on the cannabis types that sit in a fog on top of uh, the mountainside called Alpenglow Glow, where the it's like in uh, the San Franciscan shale content that's indigenous to the soil that the cannabis <laughs> farmers are knowledgeable about and grow for Farms, you know,
1: man. Like I Alpenglow. mean, this is
3: Glow this is what it means to be a cannabis someone yay. this is it this is what we're doing you know that's it yeah. that's I, awesome in
1: this conversation i want to jump in here for a minute um, i came aware of terpenes and their importance of uh, from therapeutic point of view because uh trying to help uh young people with seizure disorders and uh really found that uh Early on, of course, I thought it was uh, cannabinoids, CBD particularly, that seemed to give this benefit that we were seeking. But uh, I came to realize, yeah, that terpenes seemed to have an, an important role. And I'm realizing increasingly, maybe I don't even know that, but I'm wondering, Max, in your exploration on flowers, you started off describing your experience based on therapeutic benefit you personally experienced is what drove your interest I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, and again, I'm mostly talking concentrates because none of these kids smoke joints or or, uh, hit on their uh, dab rig. But um, we've seen really dramatic differences in benefit for uh, seizure disorder in certain kids with this type of cannabis that has similar cannabinoids as this type of cannabis, but really different results based on cannabinoid test results. And yet we see dramatic difference. Uh, so I'm wondering, have you gone any further down that path? And if you haven't, I'd really love to engage with you some more on what little I've learned over the years on that one and uh, explore potential uh, benefit for those kids. Because there's still a lot of people out there who sees on a regular basis and it's always a drag. That's well, all for- This is Wade, thanks
3: from a seizure perspective we do we i think we all know that the 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 key from cannabis is cbd you know hands down cannabidiol time cbdv specifically say that C, uh, cannabidiol varin, so cbdv specifically it's got much better anti-seizure uh, cbdv yeah and so maybe C. yeah So maybe Nick would be able to tell you more, more about it than I would from, from a therapeutic perspective. I just, I, I just know from a cannabinoid perspective, what's that? Go ahead.
7: I have a little item. Wade, I was just thinking about the moment when I I believe you've worked with Ida Fu uh, in the seizure disorder population down there. I, there was a period of time when we first had been and when Harley-Sue showed up, you know, it changed everything. The efficacy went off the chart. Uh, a lot of the kids that were not receiving benefit from ACDC were suddenly having rem- you know, remarkable outcomes. Harley-Sue is a terpinaline dominant uh, type three plant and obviously early maturing, beautiful flowers, remarkable floral intensity in addition to the terpinaline intensity, um, a very complicated aroma profile. There was always speculation that that was contributing some uh, of the element, but the other, notion was that that was the first type three plant I ever saw in an analytical testing result with CBDV, it had a small quantity. And then I've seen that uh, sort of substantiated that the CBDV contribution had really probably helped boost. But one of the things I think about in the sort of like work that I'm really excited to hear Nick talk more about is as we move towards whole metabolome kind of analysis, as we really talk comprehensively about know, all of these analytes, I I think the reality is when you have like about a thousand bioactive compounds interacting in constellations that are, you know, so vastly complicated, it's going to be lifetimes before we can tease out all of the variables from the therapeutic effect basis. And, And I actually, I have just one small idea I'd like to contribute, which is the effect matrix. You know, I'm still seeing companies who are trying to leverage language like what Max is introducing. Uh, in a sort of early effort and marketing that may in many cases sound actually a little bit like deceiving in the sense of being comprehensive or full on. And to be specific, companies that are the most onerous, the ones that are making products that say this one makes you feel sleepy, this one makes you feel sexy, this one makes you feel stimulated, whatever. It's, this, this is really clouding the airwaves You know, in in this, uh, like here we are at the advent of a new era of unbelievable chemoscape diversity and the possibility of a lot more personalized effects and broad range of therapeutic efficacy. But now we have this massive voice from the industry coming in and says, no, it's much more simple. It's just these few archetypes. And it's like, here's the thing that moves units that speaks to consumers where they're at and this whole bullshit. And I'm just like so excited to get to that next level of consequence where we can deal with the effect matrix in a more sophisticated way, which deals with endocannabinoid system tone, which is genetically influenced by diet. And and then we have the, of course, phytochemical entourage, and then we have mindset and setting, but of all of these, and deliveries have to be added in. most important in terms of the overall diverse diverse on the path to like whole metabolum research. I I gosh, I think it's all about titration and observation and journaling and also counseling. It's about having a relationship in, in that therapeutic practice. And I'm just so excited to talk with you more about that. But I wanted to just say a few things there.
6: Jeremy, that's a, Jeremy. I think that's a really good um, a series of insights. Is my mic better, guys? You sound great. Okay, it was pretty uh, echoey earlier. Um, the um, you're just talking about like uh, sort of the integrative approach um, by linking uh, therapy as well as you know close personal observation and. Um, then sharing that with uh, providers or care providers. That's a huge shift in in how therapeutics are going now. It's a lot of experimental therapies that are using not only cannabis, but also some of the more psychedelics like ketamine and or uh, psilocybin um, are really going down this whole person approach to dealing with very complex uh, mental health issues and or physiological issues. Um, and uh, and I can name some of the groups. I mean, there's the MAPS Institute. It's doing all the, all the work for psychedelic research. They just secured a ton of funding. Um, but also the Ames Institute in Seattle is one that I, I work with. And uh, they're really, really good. Uh, Dr. Sunil um, Agarwal and uh, Dr. Giles and Dr. Agarwal and everybody else who works there is working really, really closely with um, uh, cannabis and uh, medical cannabis specifically. And they don't just give you a card and send you on your way. You have to participate in the journaling with OzMind and, and go through this whole process to really figure out what works for you. And um, what Max is talking about, I think, is really interesting. Uh, one of the things that we have run into in the past is uh, the when you have enough of a sample size, you start to realize that the effect matrix is far less dependent on the chemotype of
8: the cannabis.
6: But it's going to be a feeling that's stimulating and or um, relaxing at the same sort. Sorry, I guess I guess anxiolytic, but it's the same time so stimulating for somebody might induce paranoia and stress in another, um, and that's that's much more of a a, a body issue than than about uh, than sort of the, the the chemotype issue, as you would say. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry about that. So I should probably introduce myself. Uh, thanks, Marcus. So. Um my singular. I have invited here, but also to be sort of upfront about it. Um I kind of sidled into it mostly by working on um I started out in in beer and in hop research. And so I have been uh, working on things that, that Mark, Max talked about in different different arenas. So a lot of sensory science and a lot of um, flavor analysis and development and and modeling of very complex systems and the interactions with people. So how um, a, the, the moiety of what happens in fermentation in beer and when you dry hop and add all those flavors, how those things change and how people experience them is, is obviously a very big part of, of being a brewer. Um, but I've worked in brewing um, on and off for about 20 years. Um, and I recently moved, or I guess not recently, I guess about uh, three and a half years ago, moved into hop research. And um, as many people will know, hops and and cannabis are the two closest relatives of each other. Um, in, and in the brewing world, we, we laughingly discuss in hushed tones, enjoying the cousin. Um, uh, it's sort of a running joke. Um, and Jeremy can probably talk. There's a couple podcasts that I that I used to, to, to run with uh, Justin at the Brewing Network uh, that we talk a lot about a lot of this in detail. Um, but really, the thrust of of my work for the last uh, five or so years has been trying to figure out what the relationship between the chemicals and the compounds in hops and what how that translates into sensory perspectives. And one of the things that we Actually, I'm, uh, Marcus, can I share my screen for a second? I've got a couple of slides to show you all, if that's okay.
0: Yeah, let me see if it's set up so that you can. It should. Let me go into my advanced. Oh, no, it says only host. So now all participants can share. Who can?
6: Danger, danger. Sharing? Yes, all right, there here, you let go. Let me uh, see if I can start this. And uh, how am I going to do this? Let's see. All right, here. So one of the, where is it? There we go. Let's see here. So and I'm just going to. Okay, does that look can you see the entire or can you see the presenter mode or just the, uh, the, whole, the whole slide. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So, um, one of the things to I'm just going to sort of back up back into this and in that um, hop character is something that has been discussed for um, realistically hundreds of years, but really has only started to advance and we, we've sort of I have a bit of a reputation as a as a disruptor. I, I I tend to make people's lives a lot more difficult than they have to be by asking the wrong questions at the right time. I think. Um, so, <laughs> uh, we came in to to hops, um, and there was this paradigm. And I mean, if you if you all enjoy craft beer, you probably understand this um, from way back when when the Germans dominated the hop market, and there were. Only there was only one thing they were worried about really, and that was bitterness character. And then they started thinking about um, aromatics, and they were talking about you know noble aromatics versus non-noble. So that was just bittering hops, and you had noble hops. And noble hops are like Saaz and uh, Heusbroek and Mittelfru, and you know all these pretty um, what we would consider now to be very subtle. Hops, they don't have a lot of, 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 They don't have a lot of punch. Um, if you compare, uh, as an example, like say a Czech saz or early German size it would be between two to three percent, two to three and a half percent uh, alpha acids, and it might be, you know, sub. I mean, it will be well, well under one percent by mass total oil, and that's all the, all the, all the, all the aromatic fractions. And hops, we talk about things differently. We, we don't really talk about oil. We're only talking about the aromatic fraction. Um, Whereas if you look at say uh, some more modern varieties like Equinot or uh, uh, Talus that was just released this year, they can be up to four or five percent oil and you know eighteen percent alpha acids. So that's it's like comparing the rocket fuel version of the hybrid strains that we get from the best growers today, like Mister Plum, uh, to um, ditchweed that you had to go behind your uncle's house because the hemp farmers let their seed go into the ditches in Kansas in, you know, 1974. Uh, so a little bit of a different in terms of, of, of not only the, the potency, but the, the overall character and all. And so things have changed a lot. Relatively recently, people. I mean, recently. I mean, in in the last 20 years, and this really started with Ken Grossman in Sierra Nevada and starting this you know this crazy thing called dry hopping, which was actually invented you know many 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 years ago, but he was making this amazing beer called Sierra Nevada Pale, and it, that really for me kicked off the the the, the craft brewing uh, innovation, and it was this shock to the system because people realized that beer could have different flavors and it could taste floral and fruity and piney and resinous and all these beautiful, beautiful aromatics. So they started thinking about hops in a different way. And so if you look at this, this um, the, the diagram here on the right, um, they tried to, I'm gonna minimize this so you all can see this a little better. Um, they minimize, or sorry, they, uh, they started breaking apart the aromas in the noble and the floral and stuff and started looking at spicy, floral, fruity, citrus, herbal, grassy, earthy, evergreen, so on and so forth. Uh, you also get woody in there, um, and there's a lot more than this. But when you look at this, if you look carefully, you see that all of these traditional hops are sort of generally in you know one one quadrant or one side of the of the diagram. But then if you look at all of these superscripts, you see it's also floral, it's also fruity, it's also citrus. And so this two-dimensional approach to classifying hops in terms of a spider diagram or how much it is just doesn't work because they're incredibly complicated. Um, you have a couple of major fractions. You've got the, the polyphenol fraction, which is in uh, what I always, I jokingly call the planty bits. So like the bract, the bracteoles, the petals, the stems, so on and so forth. And this is, this all applies to cannabis. Um, and you have, you know, the flavanols, flavanthriols, phenolic carbolic acids, other, other, phen- other polyphenols. And these are um, very important for the character of the whole flower. But they will not necessarily carry through uh, into the final product unless you have a long steeping time. So if you're making a beverage with hops or cannabis, um, you can get some of these into uh, into solution. If, however, you're inhaling it, this stuff doesn't it doesn't last. It gets it gets broken apart and it gets destroyed. Um, when you talk about the aromatics, though, you start seeing a huge amount of uh, variation and and complexity that that starts to to really dominate uh, and describe what the character is. So um, this is a very incomplete list. We have identified over 1,400 active compounds uh, in terms of flavor active and aromatically active compounds in hops, uh, and the list is growing every year. Um, But um, one of the things that has, has frustrated me for a while is that the cannabis industry just talks about terps and terpenes. And actually, they're not the they are very important but they're not the end all and be all max mentioned uh thiols and those are thiols are sulfur containing compounds um in a particular or, or a particular way um but uh when you talk about some of the things that are really really important terms for aromatics uh all of the diesely like fuel characteristics and I Jeremy and I have and I have talked about this um fuel is actually not a single compound. It's actually a mix of some esters. Um, there's ethyl acetate in there. There's some benzoate and some benzene compounds in there. There's some of the methyl butyl uh, characteristics, um, but it also works with the pentane uh, thioates and, uh, no, I the other hexane thioate. Anyway, it's not just thiols, but thioates and thioesters. So thiols are some of the things that uh, lead to these tropical fruit characteristics, and we've identified some compounds in uh, our hops that uh, you take two um, two hops that on the surface have the almost identical uh, terpene profile. So they have the same level of myrcene, which is going to be about sixty-five percent of the total hop oil. You've got limonene, linalool, geraniol, humulene, caraphylen, farnesene. Farnesine is actually kind of rare, um, but those. All those, those, those—we call them the big seven. But those big seven together are about 97 to 99 percent by mass, or of of the hop oil fraction of the aromatic fraction. However, if you have two hops that are that that are identical on that on that sort of traditional profile, and then you run them through a more detailed analysis using some really fun to, tools like a gas chromatograph with a quantified time of flight mass spectrometry and uh, uh, sulfur chemiluminescence, chemo- you can start finding these other compounds, these other peaks that were, were, are not labeled in the industry standard. Um, we found one that was uh, a differentiator between a hop called Sabro and a hop called Mosaic. And anybody in the industry would tell you that those two things smell very, very differently. But when we uh, did the analysis, the big seven were, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the same, but they smelled completely different. The one peak that we found that was really, really responsible for the difference in these things, because they smell completely different, was at 0. 0.0001 parts per trillion. OK, so we're not even talking about percent. We're not even talking about parts per million. We're not talking about parts per billion. We're talking about parts per quadrillion. So it's tiny fractions that make this huge difference in how you experience um, uh, the aroma of, of the hop. and. Um, that to me is really exciting because nobody else was really look nobody else bothered because they figured it can't it can't be that important. But as as Max will probably tell you, and a lot of you know, is that very small uh, tweaks to to the chemical balance makes things smell and taste very very different. Um, so it's really exciting, and we're we're really excited to be able to start digging into this. Um, the problem is, is that our industry in terms of hops, uh, and I see this as well in cannabis, has um, a lot of baggage in terms of how people talk about things. So there's a lot of the traditional ways of discussing flavors and aromatics. And uh, what ends up happening is that people try to fit what they're experiencing into pre-made boxes. It's like the IKEA version of decorating an apartment. It's cheap and easy, but not always the best thing for for your comfort and quality. so what we've had to do is uh, build and I've, I've been very, very lucky and very feel very privileged by by uh, the board and the company giving me uh, the resources and allowing me to build a team to create a system where we um, basically characterize our hops using sensory and uh, create a sensory lexicon that we all agree to use. Uh, and this is very, very important. So when we discuss things like citrusy or woody or musty. Those are pretty broad strokes um, and they depend very much on your personal experience of those terms. So for example, if I say citrusy, my experience is gonna be different from, from Rick's. Um, he, Rick, you, you live in Florida, correct?
4: Me? I'm, I'm living in Amsterdam.
6: Oh, you live in Amsterdam, okay. Um, yeah,
4: definitely citrus, got you, I'm with you.
6: So, Someone, definitely from, be different. someone from Florida or Georgia is going to experience is when you say citrus, they're probably going to go straight to orange oranges. Um, you talk to somebody who is uh, in the Amalfi coast of Italy or in northern Spain, they might start thinking about lemons. You talk to somebody in the Philippines, they're going to think calamansi or calamondini. If you think if you're in in Japan, they're going to go yuzu. And yes, those are all citrusy, but they are very, very distinct aromatics and flavors. And they all share a lot of overlap, but there's very distinct things. So when we start talking about uh, sensory descriptions, we need to agree on a term and say, OK, even though when you smell this, this evokes memories of pancit with calamansi in the Philippines because you grew up there, like I did, um, we're going to use this one term to call it that. And so you have to convert your brain and remember what you're smelling and so that we're all using the same term and then we can assign a number to it, to its intensity and its duration and so on and so forth. Um, creating a shared lexicon is, is the first thing you need to do for, for a good sensory program. Then you can start looking at taking notes on it and adding to that. So when I say it's citrusy, but I detect notes of tangerine, mandarin, and uh, navel oranges as opposed to say uh, yuzu um, or grapefruit or what have you. Um, you, can, you can add qualifiers to it and basically increase the resolution of your data. Yeah, um, and I, have, I have
4: it with citrus a lot. That sometimes it'll be like fresh citrus, or like an older citrus.
6: Yeah. You know? So like I, a I call citrus it peel. Yeah. And and you get dried dried citrus peel, like a curacao orange, which is yeah. t- to me tastes yeah. like 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 you know the wonderful sour pez. I love that stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Or um, a grapefruit, for example. If you if you break down the aroma of a grapefruit, it is holistically it's grapefruit, but it has notes of Sauvignon Blanc, it has notes of lychee, and it has black pepper in it. Um, so if, yep. you, if you, if you, if you, and that when you get really experienced in sensory, I, I find it fun, like, well, I find it fun. A lot of my, uh, housemates, my wife now, uh, all think it's kind of obnoxious because I'm always just deconstructing smells. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's really fun. Uh, like I, I remember oh, I, we, we got this, uh, we got this, we had a, you know, bread and cheese night or meat and cheese night a couple, couple of months ago. And, uh, there was this one she that had this really distinctive characteristic, and uh, she was like, "What is it? It's it's like kind of musty, but it's not bad." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's concrete cellar." And she was like, "How the hell do you do that?" I was like, well, that's my job, I, you know. Like, it smells like a concrete cellar. Concrete that's where, that's cellar. where it was aged in. Um, anyway, um, I digress a little bit yeah. here. So uh, once you've got the shared lexicon, you can start. Um, I call it, you know, integerizing or, or enumerating, but you can turn terms into numbers and that way what you can do is you can measure the intensity, you can measure the repeatability, you can measure um uh just basically you, you can see the difference between between samples. Um and I but at the same time it's very important to to not ignore the holistic approach which is you know this smells like this and I get this impression and it makes me feel this way. That's hugely important, particularly in cannabis. Um, but then once you have numbers on it you can also take Lab data and compare it to that and say, okay, every time it was above a five, this ratio of compounds was present, or these presence, these compounds were present in these quantities. And so, a lot of people say, like, I, we want to move away from from just hardcore lab numbers, or we want to go full sensory. One of the things that I've realized in my career is that um, neither is the right way to do it. You have to do both um, because to really understand the differences between um, hops or between cannabis strains, or more, more importantly, not even just strains, but lots. And this is where I'm going to get back to what some of the stuff that Matt was, or Max was saying earlier, um, um, that you'll see there's a tremendous amount of intra-strain or intra-cultivar variability. And uh, that's something that people need to realize. Because cannabis and hops, or well, cannabis more so than hops, because cannabis is an annual, hops is a perennial, um, Exhibits an extremely strong G by E or genetics by environment response. And so depending on how it's grown, depending on what stressors are there, depending on what's around the environment, a the same a clone from, from one mother will have um, a serious potential for smelling and tasting completely different, and then probably having different psychotropic effects. Uh, and so it's really important to, to to be able to try to measure that and and identify that. So we look at I'm just going to go back through this list here. It's like we look at characterizing our hops by using sensory um, and using lab data at the same time. So we take the hops, we smell them, goes into the lab. Um, it then uh, we run them through an ODP. It's a, a it's a basically olfactory port where you can smell it as it's going into the GC. So you can actually smell and write down what you smell while the GC is pulling out the peaks, which is I think is a really fun and cool tool. It's it's you can only do it about once a day because it's pretty. Intensive, like you know, sixty minutes of just sitting there sniffing really intently, and you got to do it fast. Um, but you start to build up things, and we've discovered things by using this technique that, like, we figured out what uh, the peach ester is, and that, that makes that makes hops smell peachy. And we it was a uh, a peak that did not show up on our regular GC, so we had to run it through the Q-TALK to be able to figure out what it was. But it's anyway, that's that's fun. Um, but what this does is it allows you to start seeing which compounds are responsible for which. Uh, aromas on their own, but then also what other compounds are showing up at the same time that uh, mix and interact with your sensome and your and those other compounds to give you a specific character. So one of the things that we've we've realized recently is that um, uh, three mercaptal uh, it's a thiol. Um, it is very very flavor inactive on its own. However, when you combine it in the right ratio with geraniol, linalool, and some other compounds, it can give you this incredible burst of tropical fruit flavor. Um, In a different ratio, though, it can give you grapefruit, which is really interesting. So a 2 to 3 ratio, uh, I I forget which which order it is, will give you a Sauvignon Blanc lychee character, whereas a 3 to 2 ratio will give you grapefruit. And that's really interesting to me. Because it's not just the parts, because the whole is greater than the sum of them, and it, it also depends very much on how it works with with your with your um, with your experience and your your sensory skills and and how good your nose is. Then there's the other part of it, which is that people are blind. They get something called anosmia, where you just don't detect it. So. Um, I am, for example, I'm extremely sensitive to to certain aromatics um, uh, in the beer world. It's diacetyl. I'm known for this. It's obnoxious because I tend to pick it up when other people don't even realize it's there, and I, I hate it. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I cannot smell this uh, this cooked onion characteristic, uh, and it's you know it's like fried fried onions. Um, and or caramelized onions and to some people and that it, it is uh, it's it's a combination of a couple of different things a thioate, uh, a thiol and then i think an aliphatic alcohol um i can't detect it in beer and it's like oh this is a pleasantly rounded beer and other people are spitting it out saying this is disgusting how can you drink that and I'm like well good for me um but it's really important to realize that people have different um blindnesses and sensitivities and so Figuring out what individuals' sensitivities and blindnesses are is very, very important when you're running a sensory program. So you need to be able to um, have correction factors. So if I say, oh my god, this is the worst smelling diacetyl beer ever, probably take that with a grain of salt and compare it against how sensitive I What's my threshold for diacetyl? Um, whereas one of, the, one of the guys I work with, if, if Tommy detects DMS because he's so insensitive to it, and that's a uh, DMS is the um, uh, Fritos uh, or uh, sort of cooked Cream corn uh, smell or, or or cabbagey smell. Um, if he detects it, it's probably very very strong because he's very not sensitive to it. Um, anyway, that's it's it's very useful to 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 bear in mind that your panelists and your sensory people um, will have their own uh, innate biases either from experience or just because of they have they have different anosmias and different sensitivities. Um, there are compounds that work together uh, to create a elevated sensory experience and a, on a higher level of smell or a different smell. Uh, and there are compounds that will work against each other. So they will either mute each other or cancel each other out or in the wrong combination will smell pretty disgusting. So you can get uh, uh, one of my favorite examples is ethyl butyrate. Um, it's an ester. Um, it, it At the right level, it smells like beautiful tropical fruit. However, once you get over a certain level, it starts to smell like baby vomit and rotting fruit. So it's, it's a really delicate delicate balance um so one of the things that that i've been working on with my team and i've i'm you know incredibly grateful for the people that 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 work with me um i've got this amazing organic chemist and i've got this amazing sensory head and sensory team um we're really trying to make sure that um, we're capturing everything that makes up a hop uh and then also try to capture how people experience that and then trying to figure out what the numbers are, what are the, what are the actual compounds, what are going on and how do those interact together to be able to provide this sensory experience. Um, it's a tremendous amount of work, um, but it's really, really powerful in terms of, of what it's gonna be, allow us to, 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 to do to describe these things. And these are the same compounds that are in cannabis um hops and they have the same hops genome is contained within the cannabis genome which is fun um, so we know that the those genes are going to be expressing uh, and, and they can lead to the same things um and so the exciting thing for me is that there's a lot of cross applicability of this um but one of the things that that uh so max one of the things that you were saying earlier that that i kind of was uh, was interesting um but also a little concerned about is the 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 industry's focus on potency, which I think we all agree is is not what we really want to focus on. Um, but it's also the Sample size for the effects of these compounds. So um, when you talk about the experiential, uh, the, the the nerves and stuff like that, I don't, I don't know anything about the human physiology of it. But I do know how a lot of these aromatics work together to give a um, Aromatic experience to the consumer and I don't know, I don't, I haven't seen enough data on, on what the impact of those compounds are for like sort of pharmacokinetically or, 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 uh, psychosomatically or not psychosomatically looking for, um, just the, the psychotropic effects of these things or the, or the therapeutic effects of these, of these compounds. Um, so I can't speak to that. But I do know from our experience that there's an incredible amount of individual variety and and difference between people for the same uh, same mix of compounds and so that's a um, It's something that I think with it, as an industry, we should uh, really try to focus on to make sure that we are um, Making Sensible recommendations, but also to accept the fact that that people have different experiences. of these and uh, I think it's exciting rather so again, you know, rather than this be a problem. Let's use it as a feature. So one of the things that allowed our our group to to be one of the leading um, Sort of hop sensory groups and, and hop providers in, in, in the industry was that we celebrated the variety between lots rather than trying to blend them all together and make, you know, one true to type uh, Citra or 2 type mosaic or one one type of one lot of hops out of all of them so there was an average. Um, we actually kept them separate and keep them separate and allow brewers to pick and choose what they want because there's beauty in the variety. There's beauty in the difference. Like celebrate the differences between things. Um, Uh, At the same time, we also have to uh, be aware that in terms of quality and for for customer expectations, that we do need to establish what you call typicity, um, and we call uh, this true-to-type character. So it's like, okay, this is an amazing lot of Citra, but it's got 50% more oil than normal, it's way less bitter than normal, and it smells incredibly citrusy, but it's so... Much it's a spike so much in one direction uh, aromatically that we don't feel that it's a good representation of of this hop. Now what's really fun is I have now have a field study program where we can say okay what the hell happened in that field because that's really cool and we can start to figure out sort of what's going on in the metabolome what's going on to the to the impacts uh, from the environment and farm practice to create those differences and we like to share we give that back to our to our growers so that they can decide whether they want to do that again. Um,
3: uh, so I so. Do you mind if I comment? No, no, please. Um. So when I was giving the glorified example of uh, the cannabis sommelier by <laughs> describing cannabis types with an appellation, a tewa, all these things, um, and I think Jeremy got concerned by by that from a medical patient perspective. Uh, I just want to, you know, be very clear that. Um we really have to compartmentalize how massive and how vast the cannabis industry is and how there's so many different things and levels that we can and are talking about, which all have crossover. What I was describing in that sense was something that can truly help the family farmers who practice agroforestry and uh, regenerative cannabis Mm -hmm. who are being threatened by big marijuana. And it's their ability to prove how why their cannabis is special in very real ways, similarly to viniculture. Whereas where I live in Colorado, right here, right now, there's no such thing as a cannabis appellation. And there's no way in hell you could even attempt cannabis, law because in the state of Colorado, you have to grow all of your flowers indoor by law. It is against the law to grow cannabis outside in Colorado both retail and and, uh, medical. The only cannabis you can legally grow outside is uh, hemp. And that even goes for medical marijuana patients themselves. And now, because I don't care too much about the law, and I believe that my cannabis grows way better outside than it would inside, I grow my weed outside. But um, it's not lawful. And so you don't have that here. And so um, the other thing that we don't have is the system of taking care of patients in such a legitimate and caring way that Jeremy described. Well, that doesn't exist. It's Uh, starting to though. It is, it it, is is. starting. Okay. Okay. When all I'm saying is, is, you know, in, in California, Mm -hmm. uh, what Jeremy described sound like aunt Zelda in her work. If I had a medical patient, a family member, I would want them to not, get advice from a bud tender in any just regular old dispensary. I would want them in a program like what you're talking about, because that's what they need. People do need cannabis coaches to explain how vast and complex this stuff is for them. And the reality is because, uh, being a bud tender does not require in most places, training or certification. You have stoners who are passionate about getting high, in the position of a pharmacist, helping medical patients select their cannabis as the majority of the situation. So yes, of course, what Jeremy's talking about, what Aunt Zelda does, it does exist, but on such a small, small scale that how could I help the masses better understand the complexity of cannabis by overcoming the strain name dilemma? Um, So I did a little video, it's on YouTube where I went uh, secret shopping for Blue Dream in Denver, Colorado and in an hour I bought six different types of Blue Dream from four different dispensaries brought them back to the office and I'm showing you that the inflorescence, just the the phenotype alone, you can just see this is not the same flower, especially <laughs> when you smell it and you're like, okay, these are two different flowers but we have medical patients coming in for medicine and what they're being offered, is things via strain name, Blue Dream. And they're not getting what they're needing. And so was, patient, I, and just, just to finish this the only place I went. The, yeah. the interpreting process and methodology is actually helping patients because moms who have to shop for cannabis for their kids who are done listening to untrained and uneducated, uncertified bud tenders who don't know what they're talking about can actually engage in their senses. The nose knows what the body needs. You are physically attracted. Your physiology is attracted to the medicine that you need, Mm -hmm. which is how and why we do teach the cannabis experimentation phase by helping people first compartmentalize the fact that there are really stimulating types. There really are more sedative types. And there's also a spectrum of types in between those. And so if we can help you understand how to intimately engage your flower, even in a dispensary setting where there's no appellation, there's no tewa, topicity doesn't even matter. You just need to buy something that's going to work for you. We're so proud that interpreting helps medical patients do that in, in that way when they don't have the type of guidance that you're talking about that I wish everyone truly did have. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure I just wanted to make that that clear and also say, uh, Nick, you and I have to hang out, dude. I mean, yeah, I, well, so I, I, so that's, that's kind of where it was, that's kind of where I, I was going, I, going with this. Is that <laughs> I have a
5: question for you, Nick? Sure. The last one: How many terpenes found in hops?
6: Oh God! Um,
5: <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, you don't know?
6: No, I mean it's it's well, we, we haven't identified them all, <laughs> um, but but, but it's, the ones a, it's that
5: are identified is what we're talking about.
6: Oh, in the hundreds.
5: Okay, because cannabis only has to- 156 have been identified.
6: It, that that's, it's been, have been identified, but they also don't have access to our database. Um, and it, that, that may be something that we can we can change, um, but it is, uh, cannabis will have more than 156. I,
5: I was working with Chauveton Rouge and they were able to find two or three new ones that weren't in the cannabis database. Uh, they're sent in the flavor folks. My One other question is what kind of uh, analysis were you doing to identify the headspace of these terpenes in HOPs?
6: So we, we, we have a couple of different tools. Um, we have um, a, a pretty sensitive GCMS that allows us to exclude certain sections of the chromatogram so we can uh, zoom in so we don't get confounding effects from uh, very high concentrations of compounds like uh, like myrcene. It's about 65% or 50 to 60% of the, uh, actually 50 to 80% of the oil profile of hops is mercine, um, but it's actually not very relevant for, for beer because it doesn't make it through the process. So uh, we have to exclude that. And so that gives us a bit more resolution so we can look at the remaining uh, you know, 30 to 40%. Are you using
5: GCFID MS?
6: Uh, we use GCFID, uh, ECD for some of the visceral diketones. And then we have some other sensors as well that are more than FID, but yes, that's one of the tools that we use. I've got M E. We use SPEME as well. Yes, so I've got SPEME, FID, okay. ECD, uh, and then we've got the LC systems, so liquid chromatography systems uh, that we use for the polyphenols and the cannabinoids. Yeah, um, we've
5: been doing this for thirty years with cannabis, so that's why I was familiar with these.
6: So yeah, so so uh, we're using the uh, Agilent uh, 73 something or other, um, and uh, we have the uh, it's a speamy type system with the Gerstel Twister stir bars, and uh, so it's a it's a sorbent little stir bar that you take the headspace, and then we have a uh, quantified time of flight. Uh, uh, to, uh, module on that as lo- as well as a sulfur chemoluminescence luminescence detector on that one, on that particular one. So we can t- uh, look up the uh, thiols, thiolates. You guys, you
5: guys are slightly more sophisticated than my lab
6: was, but <laughs> I've been doing it for 30 years.
0: Today's flex is brought to you by Nick Ziegler.
6: <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 I do not intend this to be a flex. It's more of a. <laughs> no, no, I know. I know. Oh, Listen, no, it was
0: it just. That shit's it on another level, dude. Way. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. we, we appreciate may, you. <laughs> I have a Deeply
7: question profoundly, for you. Oh, sorry. May, may I very uh, quickly make a comment there? Yeah, go ahead. I, I just want to appreciate the range of instrumentation Nick just described and that, you know, ultimately when we're looking at compliance testing or the kinds of aroma testing that we have in cannabis, I want to point out the clear distinction between that level of rigor other than, Sam, what you have been involved with for so long and others. But really quickly, I just wanted to celebrate Nick being here. Um, This actually comes through a chain of conversations which actually started with Rob Clark. Rob and Mojave uh, were talking passionately about hops long, long time ago. And we started reading all kinds of folks in the hop space and, and having these great conversations. And then
8: eventually,
7: um, there's this amazing man, Nick, who's showing up in all these podcasts and who has the most informed, mind-blowing, absolutely precision-oriented sensory at scale. And it's just, I, I want to celebrate that anybody who hasn't had a chance to hear Nick and all of the other forums that he's been airing this kind of content, it is just a series of epiphanies and trying to understand some of the mysteries in the aroma conversation around cannabis. Um. So I just, to me, Marcus, that you've facilitated this today is just such an awesome deal. Like I, I literally think when you bring a nick into our space, it's like the entire space moves in a really healthy uh, way, much like Max and all of the efforts you've been doing to like really build a rigorous approach to sensory. And then to, and I apologize if earlier uh, there was maybe a misunderstanding. The one thing I really wanna reject and push back on is this, we get too codified about particular effects and the correlation to scent. And of course, like even if we're looking at monoterpenes, we know that sesquiterpenes have all kinds of truly valid therapeutic contributions as well as all of the things that we cannot smell. And so while the nose knows certain things, I just think there's a line where we're we're talking about therapeutic use and more personalized targeted effects, I, I personally am concerned about trying to link those at this juncture. There's just so much research and evidence needed to support that kind of stuff. And I think that there's actually a very simple approach to doing what you just said, you know, only exists out here. And it's like it can happen anywhere cannabis flour exists with the correct education and meeting patients where they are with the flour that's available. Um, there is a process by which to teach somebody about titration and dosage, the different delivery systems, a very initial sort of perspective about evidence based pharmacology. And then sort of really support through just gentle counseling and many intervals, uh, somebody who's cannabis naive, a new and lifelong sustainable relationship with this plant that we all love, but not everybody has been able to access. And that's one thing I am really passionate about, but I will also say there's a bunch of evidence that's on the horizon right now. Uh, Dr. A.D. Ray is publishing this year, the data from the last two years of Cultivation Classic. We've talked about this once before, but Uh, I think one important part of that evidence is that we see um, absolutely no correlation whatsoever in what is, I believe, the most rigorous at-scale study of contemporary products in this market uh, with a a lot of scientists on the back end between specific terpene dominance and effects, which is one thing that we we see a lot of people running with. Um, Of course, I talked with Ethan frequently about these themes. He actually has a new bit of research from Johns Hopkins last year it was about limonene dominance actually correlating with positive mood inducement and things. But in any case, it's almost that I just feel at right now, it's enough to simply move into a maturity around sensory science and the space. And that's a massive contribution and just like a mind-blowing set of implications. And as you said, Max, eloquently, it's like, you know, there's no better way to support the craft farmer that I can find at this moment to truly differentiate the novel output of something that has like intricate and nuanced and special sort of aroma contribution and aroma therapeutic potential um, but i i'm excited to kind of also simultaneously with the kind of rigor that nick is describing an analytical process and then that correlating with human health and sort of clinical research be able to advance that other side of the conversation in a mature way I, i'm frustrated with the industry at this point because God, it was seven years ago. I set up a similar system to what you described at pharma with there was stimulating properties and there were sedative properties. And I tell you, I, I don't buy it anymore. I, I just, I've seen too many contrary examples. It's too much individual uh, basis uh, that is involved to be able to extrapolate in that way, despite the elegance of, of and simplicity of that notion. Well, 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 I just,
5: Jeremy, yes. I, I, I would like to say that when we did uh, blind testing, double blind testing with uh, 12 subjects, they were all pretty much in agreement on what kind of an effect it was creating. We were dosing pure, 100% pure THC, 25 milligrams, with just a spike of a single monoterpene. And uh, they, they, everybody was in agreement. But it's we so were I doing it, it strictly that recreational.
3: We are not focused not on medical and, at all. And I, I,
7: I also... Yeah, have... we've, we've had hundreds of judges with lots of flower samples. And I think the process you just described is a way more refined and easy way to look at the effect of a particular compound. But we just looked at the con- the products that are in the market and. Gosh, it's just amazing. Like We see a real incredible scatterplot and the kinds of effects described. However, one, here's one very important data point. The most important takeaway probably from a human enjoyment perspective when double-blinded and you know, going through this sort of random uh, experience, uh, which AD led for years, it was that actually aroma intensity was the single greatest factor for user enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And so aroma diversity and aroma intensity must be characterized. It's just such a vital task. So I'm just truly grateful to everybody working on that. And Sam, God knows we wouldn't be working on that without you. And, and also without Ethan and Rob and Mojave, who have postulated some new work also in a recent cannabis business times article about archetypal uh, aromatherapeutic categories. And that I, I truly think, I, I just hope that uh, we're all getting to celebrate a bit and the riches that gets to spill out from an ecosystem with the kind of instrumentation Nick has and the real possibilities for us to really shine light on what we all know to be like the most precious expressions of this and to not let the commodity pressure and immature early stage, crazy capitalist scaling of the industry, you know, totally muddy uh, what is actually, you know, this like amazing lineage and tradition of craft output in any case I've said I I
8: love
5: medical cannabis I'm glad to help with it but recreational is my interest that's close to my heart I want to know how can I create all the different effects and how can I increase their potency really to be honest
3: so and Jeremy um I, I also hope that um or, or maybe I'll, I'll try to explain it in this way. We do not teach that if you smell this smell, it will have this effect. We we, do, we don't teach that. And a lot of people actually think that we, eat, that a, a large premise of interpreting is that we teach people how to smell for particular terpene types. And then based off of those smells, assume what the effect will be based off of the research based on those terpenes. and. We actually, in our, in our book, um, we explain how and why that doesn't work, and it can't work that way, and that it's way more complex than that, and an idea I want to give you is how awesome it is that interpreting works for people who actually have anosmia, which is something that Nick was talking about, which is the inability to smell, and so people who have lost their first cranial nerve and who cannot even smell these terpenes, they're still accurately able to categorize the generality of cannabis and so in a general sense you know uh, a Matt, flower
5: have, have you <laughs> noticed that when you have a heavy head cold that you don't get as high from your cannabis
3: no but i have noticed that i don't get as high from my cannabis if i'm experiencing fear or being cold if it's snowing outside and I'm smoking a joint, it is really hard for me to feel feel that. But- um, Both uh, Rob and I found that, and many of my friends when I've questioned them
5: have told me that if they have a heavy head cold and they can't really smell the cannabis, they don't get as high.
3: I don't know too much about that, but um, just finishing this quick example uh, that I wanted to for Jeremy, you know, in general, it's really incredible that there's types of cannabis that are really dense from a calyx perspective. And that for whatever reason, these really dense flower types have fewer pistils in both the amount of them and the length of them. So we call it petite pistolet. So these petite inflorescences that are dense that you feel at the maxillary gland, when you smell it, you feel the smell here, not here. And that if you have the ability to smell without picking out certain terpenes, it kind of smells like leathers or chocolates, tobaccos, or mushrooms. So when you have these deep, dense, rich smell tones with these deep, dense, rich flowers that are really dense with petite pistolet, in general, those herbs affect mostly nine out of 10, uh, nine out of 10 people generally as a, kind of a sedative, stony effect. And so if we can get quickly, Max, least,
7: I, I hear you yeah. that you're connecting physical morphology again to effect in a way that I personally am uncomfortable with. I totally hear you. I also wasn't sure if you meant bract or calyx, but I, I really do feel that when you start to make this leap between physical morphology and human clinical perspective there's just this it's a bridge too far that's literally my pushback if you can illustrate through incredible evidence and and substantiate that sort of notion at scale that would be miraculous but i've seen evidence to the contrary and feel like it's it's a mistake to follow that uh, that path there's too much chemical inventory and too many diverse features in the ecs tone of individuals
3: yeah and i think you know there's, there's parts in here where we actually show and explain how and why this method um, on occasion doesn't work. But if we did have the opportunity for uh, me to hang out with Nick and you, Jeremy, and actually the rest of you, if you guys want to come to this party, I would love to set up the, this demonstration where I would allow you to, to connect um, the minuteness of an inflorescence pattern that flowers that have larger spacing just in the cola, they're just a little bit more fluffy that have a little bit longer pistolet and a little bit more of it that generally have citrusy or gassy tones that you generally feel in the higher part of the trigeminal nerve, the olfactory bulb are generally stimulating herb types. And for people who are really lost in cannabis, Mm -hmm. who are going by strain name or lab tests that won't tell you an effect type or aren't privileged enough to be in a network like you who can guide patients, that it is a system that on a daily basis, people from around the world, when they learn it, say this changed my life because I now have so much more control over my ability to shop for what I'm looking for and actually get it versus going to a dispensary and saying I, i'm looking for blue dream 23 percent thc and 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 not getting what they're looking for and so it's it's a fluidity method and i can understand if you haven't experienced it firsthand if you haven't had an opportunity to engage it and bear witness to it and actually try it that um, I could really see where you're coming from. That- so,
7: so Max, if I may, I just, yeah. it's a funny thing. So, you know, I'm a cultivator and I've been directing for this last five-year period a facility called Proof Cultivar. I have done a continuous process of cultivar discovery whenever I'm able to. And you know, we just go through tremendous amounts of diversity. Here's one of the G times E interactions that I'm fascinated with that kind of throws a little wrench into this. Personally, it's if you take, say, a classic Afghani and you have a room full of that, you're going to see a more likely stable aroma profile in that room. However, there is something that's occurring in a kind of chemical resonance similar to like say, root exudates or chemical signaling in the root zone. We have chemical signaling in the aerial tissue. And what we're seeing is, if I bring a terpenoline dominant variety into that room of Afghani, suddenly the Afghanis are starting to express terpenoline. Recently, so the facility has gone in these waves, I've been bringing in plants that have a, a high amount of lino wool. There's one plant in particular called peppermint agave. Suddenly, lino wool is showing up in all of these other varieties that are grown adjacent to that variety. Um, this kind of like, just that's like one of thousands and thousands in the transcriptome of the kinds of dynamics driving really exotic and unique expressions of chemistry and what is a consistent morphological presentation. Like I can show you flowers that look very, very similar that have an incredible range when we're looking at analytical r and results. And so it's just, again, it's that I, I'm uncomfortable with the notion that physical morphology is going to be substantiated by strong evidence in terms of human effect. That is literally, <laughs> There's almost nothing that could be said short of really strong evidence at this point in my career after 30 years of cultivation and really using my own efforts to have sensory uh, very immature early and now thankfully being exposed to people like you and Nick and many others. Um, Really, Lauren Salazar and New Belgium program was hugely (laughs) influential. Uh, These are the people that are now helping to open the door to a mature evaluation. But again, I, I just think sensory is its own element which is amazing so, and remarkable. But, but that leap is heroic. Um, Jer- Jeremy, does the,
5: yeah. does the Afghan have the synthase to produce turpaline t- t- or whatever, whatever I forget the compound you said. The, 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 yeah, the, in in other words, plants have to possess the synthase, otherwise they can't just make it exactly. out of Exactly, so
7: clearly they have that potential, but it's so amazing Sam. I tell you, I've grown so many different kinds of Afghanica over my life. We all have, I'm sure. Uh, I have never seen terpenaline in anything but a tiny, tiny amount, a tiny titer in in a classic Afghanica. We're talking like a really squat, compact, early maturing, heavy yielding, gorgeous plant. Uh, But So clearly the potential in the synthesis is there, but then through chemical signaling is being evoked and obviously... A lot of controls need to be employed to describe that interaction. I do not have that data in place. But through observation of our chemical analytical output, it's been remarkable to see varieties I've cultivated for years completely changing. Of course, I'm also doing a lot of agronomy trials. Currently at Proof, we have a room with four different kinds of sort of inputs for fertilizer and media. We have lots of different photobiology projects underway. You know, obviously light spectra and intensity is actually as large of a variable as any But Max, something you said earlier too, you know, I'd reject also this notion that terroir is not indoors. I understand if we take the classical French terroir and we're speaking really about minerality in the kind of media and substrate the plants are growing in. And environmental effects view. and stress. That, the environmental effects and stress, even uh, including and farm practice, things the like biggest... noble rot and botrytis is influenced in the progression of particular aroma. But at the end of the day, I'm absolutely manipulating. I have 16 different environments where I can really create different kind of media types, different mineral inputs, different biology inputs, and different structure, as well as different irrigation practices, different VPD uh, points, different sort of gas exchange points, and overall controlled environment strategy that very much can evoke a range of G times E and, or I like this other word, phenotypic plasticity. You know, the the cannabis is so remarkably plastic in the sense that these tiny, tiny changes result in significant differences in the chemical inventory. Um, It was really like almost nine years ago now when I first gave the exact same cutting Four growers in Portland, and this is way before the grow-off and way before I think these conversations were going on, we saw one sample with 28 milligrams per gram of beta myrcene another with a zero, the same variety. And those are really different effect types. And, and they looked, I would say, morphologically pretty tight, similar to when you see grow-off data. You know, Jake and Sam have published images of the flowers and there's range in that morphology, but in terms of the effect type, you would see a far greater range in the chemistry. And that's, that's still a fascinating piece to me. So, you know, and I have seen a really just mountains of data now. We have so much chemical analytic data, but the problem is we don't have it at the level that Nick does. And then we don't have mature sensory to sort of connect the dots. There's this giant gap that I Not think you yet, guys are Jeremy. actually working to make happen right now. And Colin, you were interrupted right. earlier, brother. Sorry to. <laughs>
9: so I, I just wanted to to jump in and just say you know um, a lot of the things you know the crop steering techniques you're mentioning and the suggested biotransformations of the targeted, you know, terpenes that you're trying to, to either you know you know you're after so to speak or the the, the suggested uh, influence uh, through different varietals in the same room and environment. Do you think? Um, you know, just in general, the, a lot of the controls play a major role, just environmentally. Also, zo- you know, I'm finding root zone uh, temperatures are playing a major role in, in how yep, expressions yep. are really, truly coming out, and that's a that's a an area that that was really kind of just not talked about for for the longest time in, in our in our world. Um, but you know, going back to what Nick was touching on, it's so important to. Touch on every you know little bit of of, of flavor and, and, and intent here, um, and you know it, it's I, I agree with you, Jeremy. I think that we're um, we've gone really far, and to try to try to humanize all of this, and we're like, yeah, we got to put our thumb on that and understand it. Um, but there are certain things we have to remind ourselves; that it gets dangerous, and and we have to find great ways to articulate. The massive hexagon and Rubius, you know, that this actually is and all the different touch points that we You know, Nick, you know, you beautifully said this and, and I think, you know, Jeremy, I don't want to go harping on it again, but you eloquently kind of explained how important the information uh, Truly is at mass like we we talk about very compartmentalized things in terms of the flavor and effect. And, um, you know, we're, we're in a, you know, we're in that, that sweet spot where we have people like Nick, I'm doing similar research as Nick right now. And I have been for quite some time. So I find his work, you know, I want to spend a day with you or a weekend if we can, and just talk, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's, it's. What I'm trying to say is, I think that it's really great that we're able to talk about these things. I think Max, you have an incredible perspective on on education. Um, you know, Jeremy's got a a different angle and a different eye for science and and cultivation. So I think together, you know, talking about this dialogue is really you know what's needed. But um, you know, the the articulation of all this is really important right now, and and that's that's the most important thing is just laying it on the table. So.
8: Yeah, Um, i I, I, I really love what
9: you're doing man and i love what you're doing nick and i love everyone in this room so i think it's it's just it's exciting you know i i don't get enough of this conversation and, and always thanks to marcus right
3: so uh that i i appreciate that and i appreciate this really awesome dialogue as well um this is really fantastic um jeremy my analogy for what you were describing i call it uh, middle school girl syndrome. Like, I don't know why they all want to be the same, but <laughs> but yeah. if you take one, uh, you know, new girl, she goes to a new school, right? So you just take one cultivar type and put her in a room full of other cultivar types, how and why they seem to assimilate and try to strive to be like each other and share each other's characteristics is a very real and true Bizarre, fantastic, and complex cannabis thing that deserves uh, celebration, right? This it's not. A- it's 100%. not.
1: It's not. It's not restricted to cannabis at all. So it right. happens in bacteria. It's called quorum sensing, and quorum sensing is now known to happen in plants as well. And so that means that plants can basically sense their environment. And why wouldn't they uh, sense the presence of other phytochemicals, especially when those are the things that attract uh, pollinators. Right. And, and so, um, quorum sensing happens in bacteria. It happens in yeast, happens in cellular organisms. There's no reason to think why it doesn't happen in plants too. And I think that's, that's a manifestation of this This is called quorum sensing.
6: Mark certainly um, happens in people. so, that's uh, yeah. that's definitely been proven in in trees, particularly old growth forests. Uh, r- relatively recently, I guess about within the last five years or so. Correct. Um, but yeah. w- w- you just you just hit on something that I think is really important when we talk about um, the uh, the variance and expression of these of these things. Is that you, you mentioned earlier that you know that it's, it's all they, they all have the genes for for these uh, for these terpenes for these these compounds. Um, it's because of the the I put a link to a paper earlier on about the um, uh, how the variation, the phenotypic variation is, is actually not uh, reflected in the genotype uh, of cannabis. Um, and what's interesting is that they do not have deletes. They're not missing these genes. In fact, they, I believe the genome is copied over four times um, in, in cannabis, if that's, uh, I may be misspeaking here, um, but it's it's there's a tremendous amount of, of uh, sort of doubling up or tripling up of, of these genes. So they've been very, very, Conserved, and it's very and at that point, it's extremely difficult to get rid of them because they're conserved so many times, unless you're doing some sort of uh, editing using CRISPR or the recently just discovered Retron uh, methodology by Harvard. Um, but what you're talking about earlier about so, sort of the phytochemical signaling, what's really Interesting to me, and that we have seen, um, I've seen this in cannabis. I've also seen this to some extent in hops. Um, is it's not just the the for, for pollinators, but stress response is a huge one. So if you see wind damage, you typically see a different uh, aromatic profile and cannabinoid profile after that. If you get uh, so this this last year gave us some really interesting data from the wildfires. Um, so all that smoke, um, and so we we eliminated any sort of deposition from the smoke. But what we saw was that um, the THC levels dropped, and CD, CBD levels, that ratio changed. So uh, we were actually able to get you know less destroyed or plants destroyed uh, because of uh, non-compliance in hemp. Um, but we did see that there was a marked change, and the only difference from from the cultivation from the year prior, because we have all the data on the farm management, on the irrigation, on the water profile, and fertilization, fertigation. Uh, uh, PAR and PP, PBFD. Um, I don't have vapor pressure def- deficit, but that's because we're out. They were outdoor. Um, but we saw that the the wildfires and the 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 either the, the haze or potentially uh, any sort of the air pollutants led to a substantial difference in expression. And we when we did account for any pollution of the of of the smoke on the plants. Um, We've seen in hops that uh, when, if a given bind gets attacked by spider mites, the rest of the field freaks out and it bumps up its beta acid production uh, because they recognize what those are. Um, I really wanna see some work on whether, whether it's insect pheromones themselves, Uh, there's some some new startups doing some really cool work on this uh, in the Bay area. or if, uh, like, if you see if it's a stem borer or a, a piercing or sucking insect that attacks the plant, and it's a physiological response because we see damage, we see similar stress responses from wind damage and some and, and hail. So it's not great for the crops; they don't look very good. But man, do they smell freaking amazing after that! Um, and so, what's interesting is is whether it's a, a physical response or uh, a simple, you know, phytochemical signaling response. I think it'd be really interesting. Um,
5: Nick, are, are... Are hops wind pollinated or insect pollinated?
6: Uh, they are insect pollinated.
5: Oh, because cannabis really? is wind, wind pollinated.
6: Well, they, I, no, I mean, you, can, you can get wind pollination for, for hops, but they're primarily, um, I mean, so the pollen gets carried away, but the way the hop cones are, um, all of the, uh, the bracts and, the, and, and all that, they cover, and the petioles, they cover up the glands and they cover up the pistils. Those actually don't come out from underneath it. So it looks like a pine cone that hasn't really fully opened yet.
3: I I don't I don't know about that. I grow a, a wide variety of hops. I grow a ton of tobacco. I also specialize in psychedelic and psychoactive cacti types. Have hundreds nice. of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's for cactus. <laughs> tons of poison. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you can see what we got going on over here, but all sorts of stuff. But um, lots of poison path herbs. And here's the deal: like um, I got little videos on my Instagram, uh, not Trichome Institute Instagram, Max Montrose Instagram where I show you the flowering structures of my cannabis plants growing next to my hop plants. And when that pistolet is receiving pollen, it does so in, a, in an anemophily way because they are wind pollinated. And you know that because the male hop plant, uh, they are uh, diocese, um its flowers open up downward uh-huh. the same way cannabis does. And that's to dump pollen from the wind down onto the pistolet, especially allowing the wind to blow it off. Um, and in in generally, like when I've grown my hops, there's no cone when it's receiving pollen. It looks identical to cannabis in the sense that there's Okay, little- yeah, that's
6: a that's a that's a fair point. You are completely correct. I misspoke on that. Um we do are- have we do have some. There are some pollinators, but you're right. From that perspective, it is it is primarily wind pollinated. Um, well, and
3: the, the other reason you would also know that it's not a wind uh, that why it is a wind pollinated species um, is because both cannabis and hops, from a flower perspective, the reason why they don't grow petals, why they're not colorful is because they're not attracting birds or bees from from that level for the sake of pollination because they are wind pollinators they are they are anemophily <clears throat> um, something interesting that you said Jeremy that I think would be a fun conversation is the idea of indoor tewa um, and I think what you were talking about I have to agree with because what you're talking about is how the environment plays a role on the outcome of the plant. Well, of course that's going to happen in an indoor or outdoor setting period. Cheat rock terpenes. No no questions asked. Right. Like I think we could agree on that one. Right. (laughs) But is that and
6: uh, me, oh, <laughs> I want to jump in on this
3: one. Well, so, I'll, I'll gonna, let you finish, and then yeah, I'll, I'll I'll I'm going to throw one out there, and then I expect this to be a, a groovy conversation. Um, so, when it comes to te-wa, um for example, Cabernet Sauvignon from the Russian River of California Sonoma region has a distinctive typicity. So the taste that is of typical from a Sonoma cab is due exclusively to its environment. So whatever reason that, whatever the uh, mineral content is, whatever the rock content is, however that soil is composed, that particular region of the world causes an environmental effect on the outcome of the wine that you can taste that's distinctive from all other geographies. So it's a geographic reason why the outcome of the flavor from that type of grape tastes different when you grow the same type of grape somewhere else. And There are, in the world of wine, there are two types of appellation. One is called TRIPS, and the other is called Lisbon. And the TRIPS agreement, to me, makes the most sense for cannabis because it's exclusively based off of describing the cannabis's quality, characteristic, and reputation, all of which you can easily describe a particular type from someone's farm. But the Lisbon Agreement is a quality or characteristic that is due exclusively and essentially to its geographic origin. And so from that perspective, um, when you grow grapes outside, you have a vintage. You have the flavor of the environment that year. And when you grow When you produce um alcohol in a warehouse and it's distilled it's a process that you have indoors that isn't affected by the environment
6: okay i'm gonna have to jump in here max Uh, so that's that's factually incorrect um so uh i'm gonna gonna, I'll, i'll go backwards uh through the distillation argument is that um Barrel aging. If you're if you're doing barrel aging, that's that is tremendously uh, impacted by the local weather, um, and uh, it's tremendously impacted by um, how the uh, oak that you use in the barrels was grown and where it came from, and uh, what sort of stressors, what sort of uh, lignocellulose uh, levels it produced, because that'll lead to the amount of uh, vanillin that comes out of it and some of the oak lactones. So there's there's a tremendous impact of this, and so when I when I when I start criticizing terroir. Terroir, um, terror, terroir uh, if I'm going to be American about it, uh, is uh, I don't, um, I do not dispute at all, and I completely support and 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 uh, agree that environment and geography have a tremendous impact on uh, the characteristics. So, so the the secondary tertiary metabolite profiles of of these crops. Um, that's not a question. Um, however, the classic French opinion of terroir is a shitty heuristic it's a it's a model that is incomplete and um it's uh from my perspective with the modern analytical tools that we have it's kind of a lazy approach it's it's it's, it, it works but it works and because it ignores so many different things we can explain it better now um, so if you look at when you talk about the, the Russian River, which, uh, you know, shout out to Vinny and his crew down there and, and all of the, all the lovely wines. Um, that's there's absolutely a difference between the Yakima Valley and Walla Walla Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, from Russian River. However, is it purely due to the environment, the natural environment, excuse me, the geography and the meteorological environment that, that, that they're in or Might there be some differences because the farmers, in order to get the best yields and the best character, have to grow it in a specific way because of those things? So, if you look at Bordeaux, right, as an example, it's
3: definitely a part of Tawa. It's not exclusively to the environment, it's how the environment and the farmer work together to make something that is recognizable. Yeah, the the farm management.
6: Yeah. The, the farm management aspect of it is something that has been historically ignored and, and the, the, the uh, sommeliers and winos, I mean, um, wine geeks uh, tend, I, I work with a couple of guys and we always get into arguments about this over beer, it's great. Uh, but um, like if you look at Bordeaux, for example, or some of the other, uh, some of the other classic French reasons, there is no appreciable difference in soil types. Um, in drainage and in, in, in that region, but there's tremendous variability between the north end of the south end, or how the growers grow it, and uh, that's and that's that's what leads to the distinction between those those things. And so what they've done is they've they've basically set a if it's from this region, you can call it a Bordeaux, right? That's you know so uh, you know denomination de de, de, of origin, you know whatever the DOMs or however you want to say it. Um, but they've also established upper limits and lower limits. For the various characteristics that those wines exhibit to to the consumer, um, they've got they've been doing it for so long they know they're not going to be well well out of out, out of range. But there is a range, and when we talk about sort of uh, uh, cannabis variation, your your Blue Dream example is, is a fantastic one. Ignoring for the moment the fact that it's very likely that people got different sources or different cuts or different clones or different seeds, um, uh, ignoring that, even if they were all from a blue dream mother or something like that, we should be working to establish this true to type, um, this true to type characteristic or this typicity. And the way you do that is you say, okay, here is the average results. Or here, here are the results of all the blue dream we could find. Um, this is the upper limit for these uh, terpenes and stuff that we, that we discovered. This is the lower limit for these terpenes. This is the upper limit for THC and, C and, the, and the other cannabinoids. This is the lower limit. And if it falls within this range, within, uh, so we typically take, take the, the median value or the mean value. Uh, so it's, the, it's, the, it's the, really the median value. And then we will go up to two standard deviations outside of that. Any more is too far outside of type to be considered that that variety, and so we use that in hops. Um, if you were to look at doing that with with cannabis, I think that it could be done similarly. Um, or the alternative is you don't worry about that true to type. So here's the blue here's the Blue Dream core, but this is a piney expression of it. This is a citrusy expression of it. This is a true fruit, fruit expression. This is a terpenylene, terpenylene and osamine heavy expression of it. However, you want to do that, but I think it's totally possible for us to create the the error bars or, or the the upper limits for that true type characteristic while also celebrating a variation within it and like jeremy was talking about end up with the indoor terroir or farm management based character paths character development for 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 individual cultivars and i think that's
3: let me, not ask, necessarily. A ahead, let sure. me ask a question yeah so um and to help help the framework of where i'm coming from so uh using Alpenglow Farms, which by the way, they're in my book, they're in my online course. I use them as the example, because I love Craig Johnson and his family and the way they grow cannabis. (laughs) I just, it's the best. Um, They're so true to the earth. They care about sequestering carbon. I mean, the way that Craig is passionate about his soil, when he touches it and smells it and shares it with you and make sure that that's the cannabis he's growing in, not some Fox Farm bag of stuff you could get right so in the sense of viniculture in the sense of growing plants outside <laughs> think about that outside <laughs> in the sun in a region in southern humboldt with a farmer who understands his Tawa and grows towards it when he produces a variety of cannabis that he came up with called coyote blue and he grows coyote blue in this region in this way with these environment and keeps that consistency. That's the true to to strain uh, type that I I believe you're talking about. And to me, that's cannabis and it's cannabis with an appellation, with tewa, with topicity, it's recognizable and it deserves a whole hell of a lot of praise compared to where I live. Because if you take a clone of Craig's uh, Coyote Blue and you give it to a standard dispensary operation in the state of Colorado, they will turn it into a mother they'll clone it out and maybe this month they'll use a mixture of cocoa core uh, with um, vermiculite and perlite and all this other stuff and then just feed it synthetic nutrients and that's it's the same strain right it's it's coyote blue and coyote blue is being grown uh, in a warehouse And not as an agriculture, but as a commodity. Um, And so obviously, when you compare the difference of those two flowers, they're going to be quite different. Uh, But from a tewa perspective and what tewa is and means, I believe Craig Johnson has tewa. And I believe the way he's growing cannabis is within a tewa. And I think he can express what that tewa is. I think he can explain it to people. Um, And I think that's what can help make his cannabis special and preserve what he's doing and keep his family farm strong and and doing what he's doing. Whereas the Coyote Blue that I would get at the dispensary, that's just, I mean, factory-made warehouse weed in Colorado. It's hard for me to say, oh yeah, that's got a tewa to it too. I'm like, "Mm, no, it was grown in a certain way. that certain way does have an output on it on on the final product but is that what te is and means when te traditionally in the french term and how it affects viniculture is really particularly based on how the natural native environment plays a vintage role on the plant types versus some so Max, I, I, I'm going to jump
7: here too, because I, I, no. I love, I, I think you've done a really great service to the classicist definition of terroir, and this is a really important idea that we have orbited in the cannabis space for a long time, and I, I think you've really done that idea service. I, like Nick said earlier, I, I do agree that we're at a point where we have different tools and capabilities. First off, I don't want to be cast as, I think warehouse weed is good. Uh, In general, I I just want to share with you that I'm a passionate, like actually the very first Regenerative Farm Award was at the Cultivation Classic that I founded and then it went to the Emerald Cup and I've been working extensively with Jesse Dodd and others to support the most meaningful movement in um, agriculture and outdoor field scale agriculture and really working with materials in in the local region and, and just have a huge passion for that. But I'm producing 50, well, 45 to 50 harvests a year in 16 environments with a huge amount of diverse variables. This is not at all like a warehouse in Colorado. I'll just share You know, that's a lot of small spaces with different lighting technology, different- This facility uh, is awesome. My my main focus right now is mineral content in the media. I am so fascinated about the mineral-balanced media and the correlation to the development of aroma. I've seen that, for example, I've been doing organic for very, very mineral-balanced media is, is just massive, but there have not been sufficiency targets for the kinds of minerals that drive the best product quality in this space. And that's really changing in these last couple of years. I'm sure you know Soil Doctor, Um, Bryant is absolutely at the vanguard of the uh, understanding about mineral sufficiency and and cannabis agronomy and has built an incredible uh, basis of insight that I I would say at this point is about the most mature I've seen. In any case, working with different kinds of mineral sufficiency targets in organic substrates with different uh, cultural practices, harvest timing, light spectra, irrigation frequency, all these elements, I can produce what is the equivalent of like that Russian River Pinot Noir and it is, is strawberry profile, but in that Willamette Valley Pinot Noir blackberry. is very much a, uh, yeah, blackberry, it's, or cherry, also cherry and blackberry, mm-hmm. kind of both, but, but, but you know, it's just that I can achieve all of those voices in a controlled environment and but one other thing i just want to say about controlled environments because we almost can't even talk about it without recognizing the research that came up from university of colorado only a month ago that illustrates the unbelievable reckless irresponsibility of carbon uh in this production environment that we're yeah, seeing yeah, you know yeah. it's, it's got a greater carbon footprint than coal in colorado for indoor cannabis production And you know this is a nightmare. This is really on the path to consistent year-round production environment, completely powered by renewables. And I'm hunting for resource use efficiency at the absolute
8: peak.
7: Of that. And I believe anybody hadization. I believe that plant factories with artificial lighting, driven by renewables, are a very significant part of the mosaic we need to move towards. But there's a little bit of like kind of knee jerk. well, it's it's not working well now, but we're not at the apex of our evolution, just like this sensory conversation. But thankfully, we're moving in a way that's progressing there, but back to being true to type. What's exciting for me is that, I think that just like the beer brewer can achieve so many results in a short period of time and therefore have this unbelievable perversity of aroma and flavor. And I always look to the old wine drinkers that I know who consume alcohol and think, God, you're missing what's happened in beer with the novel voices of barrels and barrel aged ales coming back and all of the kind of hazies and these wild sort of diverse elements compared to a a vintner, you know, who has a single result a year and in their entire career may produce like 20 or 30 results at best. It's like, I just think that we need to be having this conversation between those polls because I can produce so many results and then probably discover sooner than later what some of those variables, whether minerals in the media or other cultural practices that can help to contribute uh, to the overall base of knowledge as we're seeking to optimize ideal expressions of aroma therapeutic attributes and you know that's uh, obviously a vast pursuit it will take tons and tons of us all talking and wrestling and arguing and um, Jeremy. having hey, fun Jeremy with it. we
6: we call that job security uh, in the analytical <laughs> yeah. in the analytical space uh, but what you so what you just mentioned in terms of the um, the, the compounds and the, the minerality and the, and the, the the you know the I call them these sort of metabolic precursors um, and so looking at uh, the soil chemistry Uh, And the fertigation profiles uh, for for any crop is is really fascinating because you can then apply metabolomics and looking at uh, the genes that are being turned on and turned off in response to what is present or absent because they they will they they have different pathways to produce the same result in case if if it's if it's uh, metabolic metabolically valuable um, plants will synthesize the compound that they need Um, we do not understand why a lot of these aromatic uh, compounds are synthesized by the plant they are tertiary metabolites they're not primary metabolites they're not starch they're not a protein Uh, they're not they, they, they have some function because they're expensive to produce. Some of them are byproducts from other cycles, metabolic cycles, um, or bio, biosynthetic or biochemical cycles. Some of them are uh, seem to be an end result that is quote-unquote uh, intentional, like it's conserved for a reason. Um, I would love to find out more about what compounds, or you know, what what mineral profiles, what minerals are being used in what manner, to lead to the the synthesis of these uh, of these compounds, um, it's something that I'm I'm working on in hops. And like the like the vintner, we only get one harvest a year, so it's going to take that's real job security. Um, whereas uh, with uh, with the work that you're doing and the the uh, recycling. And it's just, uh, I mean, not the recycling, but the cycling through these many iterations is is what I would love to be able to get into more detail with, because I have the models um, roughly sketched out. I have the, the, the analytical tools. Um, I just don't have the data yet. And I would just love to be able to collaborate with anybody who's interested in this on creating a system that if not, you know, sort of governmentally regulated, but at least, you know, voluntarily regulated in the industry so that we can, you know, we, we can raise the bar, we can, we can, you know, the, we, let's raise, let's raise the water level, let's float all the boats, let's give people access to data and and, and, and reframe it in a way so that they understand it, so they can make choices that are good for them because of that in, individual variability in response. and response. So, you know what? This is the profile. This is, we call this, I'm going to use the Blue Dream example again because I think it's a really good one. Um, this is Blue Dream. It can be up to this level or down to this level of these compounds, but you will have a expected level of, of response, you personally, within that range. So you get to pick, I want a, a terpinolene dominant version of Blue Dream because I like the cannabinoid profile. The cannabinoid profiles are actually pretty stable, interestingly enough, uh, that I've found out. Uh, within a a variety. The aromatic profiles can be all over the place. Um, If you grow it using the same inputs, if you grow it in the same way, in the same place, treating it the same with exposure to the same stressors or same same, uh, uh, deprivation of of various nutrients or excess, you're going to have pretty good repeatability. Not 100%, but pretty good repeatability. Um, There's no reason that we as as a group or as an industry can't come together to try to voluntarily create this Result um, or the, you know this this database and this this information for people. I think uh, empowering consumers is is something that I really believe in, as um, I like people to be able to make their own choice. Nobody knows what's what's better for them than the individual themselves. Uh, as wow. you said earlier, like you pick the medication that you are uh, attracted to or that, or, or that you're you're drawn to because it makes you feel better. Um, let's let's just be honest. That's why we do this stuff, um, and be it because of. Uh, aroma or cannabinoid profile um and it's for me it's always both um like i would much rather consume something that is aromatically delicious um but maybe less potent in some ways than uh have the exact perfect balance of cannabinoids with no character you know it's just that's just not how it works for me and i I, I recognize that i think that there is something there i don't have it quantified i have not seen the data that does quantify it but there is definitely uh, an interaction between those things. And you Max when you were saying earlier like looking at the at the flower structure I completely agree with Jeremy that I think that's an extremely large leap to make in terms of the pharmacokinetics based on flower structure. However, I also think that people looking at a really dense bud might expect a different level of of response or characteristics from from that. So they're 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 sort of preempting themselves. There's a it's a it's the the in some way, it might be you. You could link it to the placebo effect, but it really is, is that there's a there's a bias of expectation towards something. When I see a really dense nug that's really well trimmed and clearly lovingly handled, I get excited by that because I'm pretty sure that it's going to be it's it's high quality flower in that in that perspective. Um, Difficult to do with hash unless you can tell you can actually tell that it's been uh, it's been properly sifted and cleaned and it's you know it's, it's a really good good mix and it presses well and you can you can you can enjoy it for me for me hash is far more far less visual and far more um, you know on the intake like once I've once I've once I've vaporized it and inhaled it then I have the experience of it whereas flour I mean like we we, we in the brewing industry we say that the the first sip is with your eyes you know, so so vi- for, so physical representation. And on a side note, hazy IPAs, man, they can be great flavor-wise. They can also be really muddy. But I spent you know 18 years of my life trying to figure out how to make hoppy beer clear, and then you know get it, it all flipped on its head, and now everybody wants anything hazy. It's the same thing with, with with flour. Is that when when you you know, you can get loose airy bud or you can like Dr. Grinspoon, which is actually has a fantastic aromatic and cannabinoid profile, but it's just crappy flower structure or interesting at least. Um, then you also end up with, uh, or, or you can get this like really super dense nugs um, that because the farmer grew them that way or the grower grew them that way and, and, and and managed them and, and really took care of the trim and the cure. Um, it's really like, I love that. I love that variability, um, I, you know, or, or the old uh, Mexican brickweed uh, back from 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 way back when. Um, but I think it's uh, it's it's worth considering those aspects of of how we interact with what's in front of us, and it's not just aroma and smell, but it is also uh, visual. and And I think it's it, you know, if you're if you're talking about a holistic assessment of how people react to uh, a crop, I think that's that's worth doing. So. Can I Um, chime in just uh,
10: a little bit different perspective than a lot of people here? Welcome Debbie. Hey, good to see you guys. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Oh man, Um, so much I want to say about this, but uh, I've learned a lot. Wow, that's trippy that the plants start taking on the characteristic of the plant next to them. It makes total sense. And that that goes all through like the human genome the plant genome the planet probably you know we're all like replicating to this kind of stable place um and it makes me think like spending all this time listening to the drill down i'm a retailer i have i've been street level retailing almost 25 years now so i know the consumer i mean you start talking to this the consumer about this stuff and their eyes are going to glaze over and it's kind of that rule (laughs) of three uh is it the is it uh Hot, mild, medium, you know, what's the salsa flavor? Is it small, medium, large? Um, that's how the consumer is thinking. And and so while we're talking about capturing the micro language, I think we should also talk about capturing the macro language. What are those three categories that are small, medium, and large in the industry? Uh, you know, are there three, right? I put extra large down there too, but I, you know, I really think that most of my clients are thinking in threes indica, sativa, hybrid. Uh, potent, uh, mild medium, um, uh, sleepy, uh, hyped up, or somewhere in between. So I just want to put my two cents in. Um, Yeah, what is that? uh, What's the simplicity of the macro that the, the clients are looking for? And then when I think about the micro, I think it's super interesting because I think that's where the medicine is. And I think that's what we do with the, with the micro. We really got it. We're trying to cure some diseases, right? And we need to really get micro to figure out what's gonna really get in there and bust that stuff apart. So, so I love that idea. And then this whole time I've been thinking about with all these, talking about all these stuff about beer. I think about the beer um, cooler at the store which is always so cool but there's really only a couple categories, right? Is it dark beer? Is it IPA? Is it, you know, they've kind of categorized it. And then within there, there's a lot of genius in there, but the clients are still going for those. Take me to the category that I like that's simple for my brain as a consumer. So we are are categorical
6: thinkers. So we like to make it easy.
3: I would love to, I would really love to answer Debbie on this because um, this is my bread and butter is educating uh, dispensary staff to, teach their consumers what's available to them by getting around things that are not real and true such as indica or sativa and how do we do that Um, because um, all of these domesticated hybrids are so vast that they're no longer an indica or or a sativa Um, and when it comes to speciation we're finding that Um, Anyways, that that can get too complex. I'm just going to share this with you. Um, A lot of guys on here are familiar with Rob Clark's work. And I think it was brilliant when Rob Clark was compartmentalizing different cannabis types um, in acronyms. And so he would say uh, BLH for broadleaf hemp, which would be uh, sativa species, subspecies, indica, variety, chinensis. It's a broadleaf hemp type. And within the broad to narrow leaf spectrum, you have a broad to narrow leaf spectrum within marijuana types and within hemp types. Um, And what we cannot do for the sake of, of Jeremy and reality is you can't distinguish a type based on what it looks like, which we do not do. We don't say a, a narrow leaf type is going to affect you this way. And we don't say a, a bud that is shaped this way will affect you in that way. It's truly a blend and how they kind of characterize each other together, which is too complex to go over right now. I'm not going to sit here and teach you the complexity of interpreting methodology. I just wanted to let you guys know that that's not what we do. Um, but what we have done is we've we've gently separated Rob Clark's work by instead of calling it a drug type, because he was separating a drug type from hemp types. But his work came out the year before hemp had federal legislation that opened up hemp farming for farming it for drug types. And so out here in Colorado, people farm hemp specifically for CBD, or they farm hemp specifically for CBG. And those are drugs. Drugs are medicines. Medicines and drugs are interchangeable. That's why you get medicines from drugstore. And so you can't call the one that gets you high uh, a drug compared to hemp that you're farming for drug purposes for for a variety of different reasons. Um, And after we learned the 500-year-old etymology of the word marijuana. And how and why it is a cool, beautiful, and righteous word, not what we thought it was and where it just comes from, from the 1930s perspective, um, that we really just compartmentalized that there's a difference between hemp types and hemp varieties and marijuana types. And in the world of marijuana cannabis, we have broadleaf types. So we have broadleaf marijuana that we call BLM. and uh, because it's not just sedative. There's sedative, but there's also types that are a little bit less sedative. We just call it BLMD, broadleaf marijuana dominant, medium leaf marijuana is the type that's kind of that's in between. NLMD is narrowleaf marijuana dominant, and then NLM is narrow leaf marijuana. And what we have found is in general. If you have marijuana types that have very narrow leaves, that generally has a a plant shape and that plant shape has longer spaces in between the nodes. And that longer nodal structure allows the colas to grow out a little bit longer and become a little bit more fluffy and less dense. And that plants that look like that, then also, depending on the aroma perspective and its chemotype, you can start to compartmentalize that in general, NLMs, narrow leaf marijuana types, for the most part, are generally stimulating types of cannabis. And so you're not calling it a sativa because there's like, you, you can't really say, well, there's a, a hardcore sativa and a little bit less of a sativa. So we just respect the fact that cannabis is on a spectrum of effect type. And we just use uh, acronyms to compartmentalize them. And we use acronyms to separate marijuana types from hemp types as both of those cannabis types have broad-to-narrow-leaf spectrums.
8: Well, Max,
5: are so you clear. familiar with the work by Carl Hilling? Uh,
3: yes. I mean, I, I know quite a uh, I've, I've read his papers before.
5: Okay, because that's where Rob got the narrow-leaf and broad-leaf, was from Carl. Interesting.
3: I did not know that.
5: Yeah, absolutely true. Carl and Rob are very close friends of mine.
10: I think for the consumer, we can just even drill down further that they're probably only going to want to know six things, six factors. Uh, Is it lightly potent, mildly potent, super potent? Does it make me sleepy uh, in between or uh, like, is it like coffee? And and I think those are the consumer categories. I don't know what else. they. I mean, other than that, they want to drill into those particular categories once they find their crossroad. But All right, so
3: so Debbie, spin, spin the wheel. Which way do you want it to turn? left right and how many turns do you want
10: no i get it I, i'm just saying it still is a little bit confusing but no, okay. it, I, the, uh, just kind of putting a big topic on the a big picture topic not you know n- not of broad interest but the consumer i think is going to want something more simplified they already <laughs> use something more simplified you, so you make I, Debbie, a super think,
0: good point, Debbie, actually. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, this is something we're not thinking about because we go deep down the rabbit hole. But it's if you ever stood behind a dispensary and just made sales all day, and if you did it for 25 years, the way Debbie did it, you would have like a very unique perspective based on the reality of the customer, the end user, nothing else. And I'm with you, Max. I'm all about like no, but let's like, cause I'm I geek out on this stuff. I want everyone to learn this stuff. But when I also go do my PK sessions at Canadian dispensaries for my own company's products, um, you know the, the the people who are working there, they they're like, oh yeah, I want all this stuff. I want to learn all this stuff. But in reality, when I talk to them, they're like. Dude, I have like forty-eight seconds with each customer. Sometimes two and a half minutes. They don't want to hear as much of what I've been saying as I as I thought they might.
6: And, so and that's this is
0: unique. Go ahead.
6: Uh, so, Marcus and, and Debbie, you're, you're both hundred percent correct in this, and that's that's something that uh, that what we're going down the rabbit hole. I think that Debbie's, uh, you know, let's let's make it simple. Like this is generally uh, stimulating or generally sedating. This is sort of middle of the range, you know, based on the cannabinoid profile. Um, I think that it also the one, the other thing the consumers do is like oh I want a diesely smelling one or I want a citrusy smelling one or I want a, a you know tropical fruity smelling one um, those I think being able to 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 give those labels is really really important and if you can assign a simple number like this is you know uh, it's a 5 out of 10 fruity, it's a 7 out of 10 citrusy specifically and so on and so forth is is a really easy way to do it. And as you know I was ranting on about how heuristics are a problem earlier but I I use them all the time and that's how we explain a lot of things in the hop world and, and in the beer world and it works for people. And like you said Nick, like you know the, the classifications.
5: You, you've seen the Phytopacks? Yes. Yeah. That's pretty good.
6: Yeah, and so I I think I think we we're we're, we're heading towards these directions as an industry from a bunch of different sides and if we all kind of came together it's pretty useful it would be useful for, for people to, to be able to see these things and and give them a, a simple tool that we could sort of at least anchor the conversation around and like here in Washington for example we have uh, this the, the move towards the actual like you know the dominant terpene profiles and and all of the cannabinoids that are that are have been detected depending on the methodology and forget about lab interlab variants we've seen. Um, but those are really useful tools for me personally. I'm like, oh I love the smell, but this one doesn't actually make me feel that good. And to try to understand and and sort of arm the consumer with you know give give the retailers and and the, the the novice consumer Access to simple categories to discuss these these things and sort of frame the conversation. But then, as they get more interested or they notice specific effects, they might at least have access to information that allows them to drill a little bit deeper. And this, like when you talk about uh, terms of flower, uh, you know, all the, all the flower characteristics, I think that's that's fantastic. But you know, this is a hash church uh, discussion, right? I mean, how does that apply to to hash and, and and extracts? And that's those are those are increasingly popular methods of consumption. It,
5: it's actually a sin to, to smoke marijuana in this church. You, you can only smoke hashish.
0: <laughs> actually, actually, can I, can in, fact, in fact, no matter what you smoke, you're smoking hashish. When you smoke flour, you're just smoking hashish diluted on flour.
8: It's, <laughs> it's, it's been diluted by
0: the plant. It's all hashish. <laughs> we don't discriminate That's what here. That's the volcano Sam?
5: Does. Sam? It strips it right <laughs> off the volcano for example you you put a bud in there and it liberates the resin heads the trichomes everything else is left alone really
0: it's true what a great conversation i'm glad uh i, I was loving how deep we were getting into it and i just also loved debbie just coming in and being like oh hey uh just uh you know over here yeah. in reality uh just had a couple perspectives <laughs> it was good debbie really it was thank you i I, I wanted
10: to i like the idea of really uh, doing the science it's incredible all the work we can do it's offensive when we think about prohibition and i mean we maybe could have cured cancer all these different things that could have happened with cannabis had we been able to do the research so thank goodness you guys are doing that and let's keep drilling down and figuring out what these specific molecular makeups can do to help humans you know so
3: well uh jeremy
10: you
5: You, you can lead a customer to knowledge, but you can't make him think.
10: I uh, like that. A lot of people are coming into the dispensaries to, so they don't have to, right? They're trying to let go of all the complication in life. So even when I go in a dispensary, I got two questions. What's the most potent and what's going to make me feel like I'm going downhill on the roller coaster? Like, ah, you know, just guide me right to it. I don't want the, anything else, you know, I'm connoisseur level. So I like the fact I can just be like, zam, take me right there.
8: So, so, so uh, Debbie,
10: Debbie. I, I, oh, if I may, uh,
7: there was a wonderful series of experiences when uh, we still have medical in Oregon, where there was very low throughput in the retail experience. And that was a really special time because every individual that came through the door, there would be like an hour minimum conversation engagement, because very often people would present exactly the kind of narrative you said. It's like, which one makes me feel like I'm going down the roller coaster, et cetera. And really inevitably it was like, well, let's talk about the effect matrix. Let's talk about phytochemistry and dosage and titration, these different delivery systems. And then look at all of these novel, exciting products. Now to like induct the individual into the adventure of exploring the nuanced altered states of consciousness and the therapeutic effects that can arise and to really empower them, I think also requires this other set of knowledge we're not talking about, which is psychopharmacology. There really is this amazing set of data that illustrates, say you prescribe somebody SSRIs for their anti effects. If you simply give them the drugs, the drugs actually over time for most people are not going to do much for them. It's actually going to generally work to be that you'll see a decreased quality of life over time. However, if you combine those drugs for a brief period of time with counseling, and have a little bit of a human interaction, then all of a sudden you're engaging in this incredible sort of effect boosting, potentiating result that we see strong evidence to support in the psychopharmacology world. So there's this fascinating sense that I think one of the things that we're missing is we have, you know, this perspective of give me the thing that does this. And now we actually need the, well, it's not, it doesn't work like that, but here's this range of things. And dose is going to matter tremendously. So, we want you to start with this tiny increment so you can get to know what that is at different times in the day, at different levels of stress that you're experiencing, et cetera. Come to know this one element and then gradually build that until you hit undesirable side effects. And then you know the threshold, at least for now, based on your current tolerance. And then you back off a bit. But that sense of like a mature titration process. And- of adventure. It's this other human element that I I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's a bit of empathetic attuning. And it's actually just the sense of being heard as a consumer and then also being supported. And that there's something about that interaction that's such a wonderful opportunity, which largely as we went from medical to adult use, went away because of massive You know, volume of transactions and this kind of high throughput model, and then a lot of savvy marketing campaigns saying this product does this, this one does that. And then, really, this kind of giant cloud of confusion over what has been a movement for decades, you know, from the Bay on to really help people to actually improve their quality of life, to have a lifelong sustainable relationship with these products, whether it is hash or hash and flower form, which actually was my favorite comment of the whole show today except uh, anyways i i just think that we we have so far to go and unfortunately if we go too soon to the overarching categories we lose a lot on the other hand if we spend too long spinning in infinite diversity uh, we also lose a lot of engagement and so it's of course both are so important and i just really love the pragmatism of your comment and also have wrestled that a lot i think almost i'm the worst person to answer what those absolutely essential archetypal categories are going to be or what they look like, because everything I'm doing in my inquiry just illustrates greater range in diversity than I could have imagined possible. And then you bring Nick into the conversation and we're looking at a level of phytochemical inventory that so far surpasses what we've conventionally been talking about. And, you know, including aldehydes, esters, flavonoids, uh, all of these other compounds that are clearly contributing And, you know, they connect with Dr. David Marie's work that illustrated that, in fact, cannabinoids were not the key variable and why the autistic kids started having incredibly heightened aggression. And, you know, a child throwing his mother through a plate glass window when dose A, which was a one-to-one ratio, then gets replaced with dose B, also a one-to-one ratio and radically different effects. And, you know, there's just so much mystery about the effect itself. But I think there are ways to study that and I don't think that's neatly connecting the dots w- with phytochemistry at this point. We're, we're immature there, clinically. We just simply don't have that maturity. I see the camps that are doing it and D- David is certainly out in front or Didi. Uh it, But I think there's another approach which Dr. Aidy Ray, I wish she was on this call because the reality is she has a really wonderful summation of how to approach that human connection to effect an experience based on a, a really rigorous scientific approach. And I just think that voice isn't at the table. That would be a really fun, additional uh, tense and fantastic uh, dynamic to bring forward.
10: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm
0: loving the conversation. Go ahead, Debbie.
10: Sorry, I was just sitting here thinking, okay, people come into the shop and this is what they want to do. They've got a health condition. They want to transform. They feel one way, they want to ingest cannabis, and then they want to feel a different way right? better or they're coming into the shop because they're like, I'm gonna do something. I want to go hiking and what's going to be the best? I'm going to study what's going to be the best. I want to sleep what's going to be the best. It's it's an actual experiential thing that they're asking us about. They're not asking us about the chemicals. They're like what's best for swimming, you know? What's going to be best for watching a movie? well you know, I want to connect with my partner. That's best
7: for <laughs> swimming? <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Oh god. Where
10: did that even come from? I have no idea.
7: No, for real, uh, they're literally asking what's best for swimming. I've had those same comments. Yeah. But always
10: like, so it's, I don't so know what you Molecules, these. but how do we classify for the consumer like this is the one for sweat. i don't know i'm just saying it's interesting it's a there's a molecular conversation and the fact is the consumer is looking for a sensory experience that's transformational i feel like this and i want to do this and where do the two connect and 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 like and we could talk for hours of course and figure out all these different classification systems but i think we agree there's not one yet either on the macro or the micro and and, and it is a mature market already. I mean, we've been retailing legally, me and ATN, since the 90s, and our, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is a mature market. Right now, right now, cannabis, sativa, indica, and hybrid are used by our buyers and our staff uh, as a classification for experience. It's not so much with the real, what the real plant is. If we call it indica, because we think that's going to be more of a couchy type of cannabis. If we call it sativa, we think it's going to be more uplifting. You know, anyway, I'm just saying. I, with you I, I totally right.
7: understand that Debbie, people do that. The problem is it just doesn't work. And I really mean that, you know, I get that we've all defaulted to a kind of jargon that is um, but the the problem is it doesn't work. So I think there is a ways to go. Every time I have the chance just to make it really, really simple, I simply start with, you know, it just doesn't work like that. There's like over a thousand bioactive compounds and unique constellations in each one of these lots. And even if you get the same product from the same producer, you're probably not going to see Bedrakan-like trait stability in the chemovar expression. You're actually going to experience a range of things. So embrace the adventure. Here's some tools for the ride. You need to understand titration with all of this, explore. And the great news is unless a bale of it falls on your head, it's probably not gonna do harm. Although now we actually have to deal with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which I've just had my second experience with in the last month. And it is absolutely horrifying to see what people go through. It is actually a psychosis that preempts that is before the cyclical vomiting, which is, a, it's a really wild experience that is actually legitimately happening to a now significant population of people consuming. Outside of that, the bale of it needs to fucking fall on your head. So it's safe and therefore enjoy the adventure. Like let's not actually project immature systems onto the infinite amazing layers and vicissitudes of this relationship between people and plant. Let's rather encourage a passionate exploration and resource with the best science and evidence that we have. And, so, in a limited way, you know, that sort of thing, I always get
3: off on. So, so when I was a bud tender um, and someone would come in asking for an indica or a sativa or what would help them swim, I, I would do exactly what Jeremy's doing. I would say, but it doesn't work like that. And I would try to explain to them the complexity of the effect matrix and all these things. And then I'd get yelled at by my boss because he's like, dude. I love the fact that you just want to educate each and every individual customer that comes in each time, but you are slowing down my entire operation. I have a line out the door. These people are, you can't even understand half the shit you're saying your, their eyes are rolling in the back of their head. There's gotta be a meeting in the middle point where all of the stuff that Jeremy's saying, which is hundred percent real and true that the consumer doesn't know what they don't know. They don't know what to ask. And sometimes they don't have the time of day to get the type of education that we're so passionate about and want to offer to them. Um, and so, uh, that's the reason why I'm trying to develop this app with this aroma, um, science company that, uh, does, cannabis aroma the way that i think nick is doing hop aroma and probably very similar ways and, and wrapping that in with just a little bit of interpreting methodology but also for the first time grading cannabis how good is this weed am i buying good weed or bad weed what is good weed who sets the line for what good is and how do you measure that so at the end of the day Hopefully what we'll be able to do is if you either are searching for something particular or you can go into a dispensary that doesn't offer deli style anymore, which is horrible, prepackaged cannabis. You're not allowed to see if your body is attracted to this plant or not. Hopefully you'll be able to scan it with your cell phone and it's just gonna have one page of information that will tell you on a scale of good to bad, this is how good this product has been graded. And on a scale from stimulating the sedative This is where a computer based off of aroma profiles have found it to be, which has been corroborated with interpreters, people who are really passionate about the flavor, the aroma, the effect type of cannabis all together so that at the end of the day, a consumer doesn't have to know and understand the details of this complexity. They just have to scan a jar of flour and see, okay, these really smart guys who are super passionate cracked the code of what this varietal is, and they just programmed it in a quick e- information space for me to say, oh, this is a 91.26%, a, a uh, so this is an A-grade minus cannabis that has uh, really gassy and fruity tones, which generally is going to equate to this type of an effect for 9 out of 10 people. Um, and also, if you want to go even crazier, you can slide over and be like, where's its appellation? What's its tewa? What's the grower story? What's the history? And try to, you know, offer cannabis in that way. But um, before I, I have to jet and get out of here, uh, Jeremy, I think, did a good job of celebrating Nick and all of the work that Nick is doing. And after Sle- learning- slightly
6: embarrassingly, but but very much. Thanks. And, and I'm, I'm actually humbled to be invited to, to speak with all of you. All This has been fantastic.
3: Well, I, I just wanted to celebrate what Jeremy's doing. Uh, because uh, I think you're uh, when you described the way that you're going about your version of growing cannabis in a controlled environment with different environments indoors, that's replicatable. I believe what you're talking about can and, and would have a tetwa. And so I'm going to make that leap from you can't have indoor tewa too if you're doing it the way jeremy is well then yes you could definitely apply the ideology of of tewa in that way and you're also pushing a boundary too every french person is just yelling at the computer right now no you can't do this (laughs) like what like this is it's to the earth and oh my god and like I like frenchy cannoli is like screaming in the background no you can't do it indoors (laughs) but i think i think you i think i think because you're 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 going about it in such a passionately intelligent way and the term that you keep referring back to maturity I think you're bringing a maturity to the idea of how growing indoor and consistent cannabis could and should be done. And uh, in my geography and where I come from, those guys just aren't there yet, man. They're just trying to pump money right? They're just shooting pounds. How many, what kind of light lumens can I get for how many pounds? Because at the end of the day, my goal is to make millions of dollars and retire on this weed thing that I've been, that I love since high school. That's it. It's it's not the same amount of care. It's not the same amount of passion and it's not the same amount of maturity. So I just wanted to share with you that I'm proud of the work that you're doing and I'm very appreciative of it and that I would, I'd like to learn a lot more about it.
6: If, yeah, Thank I, I can. Much I the can. S- I can speak to that as well. Um, I I was super impressed by Jeremy with the first time I met him, and that has only grown. Uh, and actually, getting to see the facility and sample some of the the product that you have you have created was just a pleasure. And uh, I got to come back next time in Portland, dude. That was a that was fantastic.
7: Well- I'm honored, and, and sincerely, a lot of my passion has been informed by other people present on the church right now. And I just, I again, want to thank Marcus for facilitating a conversation that includes as many diverse perspectives and Colin to constantly big up and support that process. And Sam to inspire all of us to be at the foundation, Debbie to keep it real, Etienne to lay down the foundation for the Bay Area activism. Anyways, all of these great humans But the reality is, I I just am also grateful to you, Max, for all of that feedback and for the bold efforts that you've made to essentially, you know, really, really take a point position and leading sensory forward in our space, knowing how absolutely vital this is to the, especially the producers I care about the most, who often the people who can show you their soil and how much love and concern that they've put into that, it's like they're not able to get any kind of value at wholesale level at most of the high throughput retail locations right now. And until sensory comes in and validates that until a critical momentum is achieved where we can actually recognize that all cannabis is not being produced on an equal level. There's tremendous variance in quality. Quality is yet to be identified in a mature way. And this is grinding up people who have been multi-generational farmers who are the very best at at this craft. And, And I'm just so excited to see that reality start to turn. And I think everybody's contributing to that in this discourse. But anyways, just such an awesome honor to be in Hash Church again and, and here uh, with family, working on challenging issues that will probably outlive us. And that I hope we all get to somehow uh, support and breathe more life into because uh, gosh, we have a long ways to go.
0: Well, I have no doubt these conversations are incredibly important. And I didn't really know it when I first started Hash Church and even after a couple of years. And then I looked back four or five years later and I had taken some big breaks and I was like, oh, wow, that was really important conversation. And it's it's how I feel now, again, that these conversations are incredibly important. It's great that we're having them. And I thank all of you for showing up and, uh,
3: yeah, engaging in these dialogues. It's awesome. Thanks so much, everybody. Great conversation, thank you, uh, Marcus. Great meeting you, Max. I love to connect with you. Talk more, definitely. I'd like to talk, yeah. To you. Oh, and, really, for sure. and Nick, man, I want I want to go to Nick's school. Like, uh, let's, <laughs> same. For, it's a scary place, wait. dude. It's a scary wanna, place. Oh man, like, uh, uh, and I can't wait to tell you guys about the cannabis uh, in hops. Uh, new species that's been hybridized together at an F7 that I, I'm writing about in the new interpreting book that's coming out this year. Really? Um, Who did
8: that? Uh...
3: Like, yeah. he's, like, oh, Wait, hey, he's like, how can you start next. something like that and then bail? Yeah, like, Hey,
6: Marcus, <laughs> um, this
3: is a different. How, yeah. how about next hash church? We're gonna get into all the funky types of cannabis, like uh, uh, you know that duckfoot Duck Duck ABC. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know yeah. that duckfoot was first scientifically described in the 1920s? I've got white papers on duckfoot. Oh
5: no, from- i I've, I've got them from the 1800s
3: yeah exactly Uh, like this is like i think we you know what marcus next hash church will be the most unique and bizarre cannabis varietals and even types that are pushing the boundary of being cannabis and are now moving into humulus cannabis humulus um i'm definitely feeling a continuation
5: I, (laughs) i tried to hybridize hops with cannabis we we tried every hop species we could find, and we crossed it with cannabis, and we did the vice versa. We never got any cross pollination fertilization whatsoever. And I now, think I I'm not why. saying
3: because <laughs> there, I... there's a trick up someone's sleeve. The guy who did it and who figured it out, there's a trick to it. So um... and uh, and you've confirmed that it contains both genomes. The, oh, yeah.
6: The, there's a yeah. bit of a problem with that because the genome's already contained within the cannabis plant.
3: Right. So, so. anyway, till next hash church. <laughs> this would be this would be a whole nother three hour uh haul. Uh I'm gonna I'm gonna uh go take care we of We can dog. go, bro.
0: What are you talking about? We do five hour all the time. <laughs> I'm just joking. We'll do it next <laughs> Sunday.
5: I, i'm I'm telling you, Max, we tried so hard to do that. I'm not saying it's impossible, but uh I've never, never seen it. I've heard at least 100 different people say they could do it. So
3: I'll, I'll tell I, you I'm the very, trick. Very, very curious. The trick is to use a species of hops that nobody uses to produce beer with.
5: Yeah, but we, we,
3: we
6: use a species the, of the hops.
3: One? A species what's of hops. Trust- hops is polytypic the way cannabis is not
6: yeah uh, okay. well I definitely need to connect with you on this because this would be really interesting for for me from a variety of reasons. Uh, so
3: yeah and I mean um, you know uh, you know we also discovered glandular trichomes that have never been scientifically um, looked at before. So I've got a contract with two different universities who have confirmed both in South Korea and Colorado that cannabis glandular trichomes that we have found that look unlike any other trichome type, are definitely novel, and what they'll uh, uh, this year when I flower these plants out, they're actually going to, to um, dissect the anatomy of the glandular trichomes as they're alive in their living state, which is why they have that's, to do this. That's fun been line.
5: done many times, Max, with lasers. It, 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 that's yeah. already already been done.
3: Novel, unique, but not done to
0: novel novel trichomes. He's talking trichomes. about. There you yeah, go. There you
6: Brand
3: go. new Tricom types. Hey, Marcus. I think,
6: yeah. Just a quick question for you here. Um, I'd love to, I sent an email to who I, what I thought was everybody on here, but um, I think we've got some new late joins that weren't in the original email thread. Um, is the chat, uh, does that get published as well, or is that is that private? Uh,
0: the, the chat here it does not get published, uh, the Zoom chat, but the one on YouTube does.
6: OK, so the Zoom chat's private then, right?
3: Yep. Okay. So I just shot you my email in the Zoom chat. Oh, no, I just shot that to Debbie. Let me shoot it to everybody.
6: <laughs> I just hit mine, so hit us up, please.
3: Yeah. If you want to connect some more, that'd be great. Oh, <laughs> for sure. i Oh, and when you ask for volunteers to help create a standard for, it sounds like we're trying to create something like uh, IBUs in, in beer, but for, for cannabis and in a variety of different ways. Anyways, I I would love to be on that team and that project and and explore those ideas. Sounds great.
9: Yeah, Nick, that sounds like uh, a great direction to take everything.
3: I will bring I actually have a ton of photographs of the cannabis and hops crosses and in uh, a variety of different ones too there's there's a handful of them um, and and you'll you'll see these plants will be like oh my gosh that is a hop plant growing THC and CBD rich cones <laughs> and uh, and vice have, have versa really interesting
5: the, have you tested wow. the hops with analysis see with the can I, can I, can I work? yes the
3: yes we have done cannabinoid analyses the thing that we haven't done yet is genealogy so uh genome testing is coming next
9: very cool max
3: yeah hey you guys rock um marcus thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this hash church this was a good one and i'm just so thankful to uh to be with all these uh really incredible uh cannabis leaders uh intellectuals so thank you so much
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming out, man. We'll definitely try to continue this next week. That was like a solid, like solid three plus, you know, three, almost three hours (laughs) you guys all went on and it was great. I really enjoyed it. It was, uh, It's always a pleasure to have uh, uh, everyone on the panel and to join. Today was a good one. Like today was a good one. It's going to, this one's going to be popular in the podcast form, I suspect. So for those that don't feel like watching YouTube, this shows up on like um, Android and Google and Apple and Spotify and Pandora and all those sorts of things uh, just under hash church 3.0 and I'll be uploading it today at the end of this episode, which I suspect I'll yeah let it go for another twelve minutes. We can keep chatting a little bit, and maybe and Nick, one more rip. Uh, but can,
5: hops are uh, heterozygote, correct?
6: Uh, dioecious heterozygous. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. I, sorry, I think so. I'm just. A, I haven't, cannab- e- I haven't eaten breakfast yet. My brain's a little bit slow. <laughs> All
5: cannabis is heterozygote. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I'm just trying to understand how hops can cross with cannabis. I mean, it's... I, I did the same thing. Rob and I spent several years trying to do it. We got every species of hops there was in the entire world. The rarest ones were from China, but we could never get them to hybridize.
6: The Uninensis has actually been uh, disproven as a species. Um... We're pretty sure that well, that's. We
5: got it anyway.
6: Yeah, the uh, you probably got the Qingdao flower, uh, yeah. So yeah, hops are are they've got a high level of blah, blah, blah. Um and yeah, a lot of repeats as well. So, but it's a uh, it's interesting. The people have tried. People have have had limited success, and uh, they've been able to to cross them, and then they tend to die uh, before like the fourth internode. Starts yeah, to and I've seen grow, people so.
5: graft them, I grafted them
6: no, 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 but, I mean the the grafting works, but then actually even even yeah. hybridizing them they, they have no, been able I, to get stick and then think. it dies quickly
5: yeah, and we could not get any set seed, yeah. either on the hops or on the cannabis, vice versa because we did it both ways. Like,
7: one totally different idea here that's parallel I'm sure you're aware of a type 5 cannabis variety so now we have a knockout that's in the synthesis resulting in cannabinoid null profile these aroma rich cannabis products being used for dry hop addition or dry hemp addition uh, strikes me as offering a whole novel array of you know aroma contributions on the ale side uh, on the cannabis side a little bit uh, yeah different but Interesting. I have yet to see type 5 plants actually being used in that way, but it sure seems like a novel and fun application. But those well were, were like described,
5: by, by, those oh, were sorry, described my- by Dr. DeMeyer. Right. That was our
7: work. I, I recall. Thank you for reminding me some of those amazing work. And ultimately, I can't wait till I get to play with some of those type 5 plants. I've never, ever found one in any of the sessions I've hunted and always hoped that somewhere in a type three population I'd I'd run into that, but um, we have lots of type fours now. Oops, sorry, what was that?
5: It's a mutation. Yes. A natural mutation.
6: Hey, everyone. I really appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you. And uh, Jeremy, always a pleasure. And Marcus, thank you so much for setting this up. It's uh, This is just a fantastic privilege. So I hope we can we can do it again. And uh, I'd love to connect. You guys have, put my email in the chat. And uh, I sent an email to those who were on the original chain. Uh, but please reach out if you'd like to discuss anything further. And um, I will definitely be reaching out to some of you guys. So thank you all so much. I
0: have a strong feeling you're going to get about a dozen emails.
6: awesome. <laughs> Great, new people talking about fun things that I care about. This is fantastic. I mean, what's not to like? So
0: yeah, thank thanks for showing up, Nick. It was indeed a pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy, for uh, linking me up to Nick. And uh, you know, thanks, Ron, anyone that ever wants to inspiring me to reach Nick. No, sorry. Well, anytime anyone wants to link me up with great people, I immediately share those great people with the world. So I do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you both, Max and Nick, and everyone else for showing up today. It was. Uh, it was fun. I suspect we'll be thinking for the next seven days solid before next Sunday. People get, Everyone's going to have a presentation available like Nick did.
6: Oh, that wasn't a presentation. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid the, uh, the, the murder by PowerPoint um, or death by PowerPoint problem. So.
0: <laughs> Dude, I was liking it. I was, I just loved the whole the whole day today, everything from Max starting, for from you, Debbie coming in, like just, it was all just really quite enjoyable, all sorts of beautiful words said by Jeremy and uh, Wade chimed in very early with, which is always just like a, a pleasure and a privilege to hear his voice on a Sunday morning in my ears. I always, uh, you know, there is a vibration uh, from Wade's voice that is, uh, that I can say, uh, does create a calming effect. I can, I can say that with a hundred percent, uh, truth. So thanks Wade. Thanks
6: everybody. He has a voice made for radio. I have a face made for radio. So, um, <laughs> all right, y'all thank you so much. Um, I hope to start chat again soon. Bye guys. Bye.
1: Bye everybody. Thanks guys. Yes. Thank have you, Marcus. One. Really good session.
0: Yeah, we're going to do it yeah. again next week for sure. So, uh, Let's all uh, let's all come back next week, and I'll see you then. Peace, y'all. Peace yeah. out.